0: This week's episode of Astonishing Legends is supported in part by The Great Courses Plus, Squarespace, and ZipRecruiter. And we're back. Uh, Give the people what they want, I guess. The people want me to say, and we're back. So be it. (laughs) (laughs) What's on the menu this evening, sir? All right, what are you doing now? Well, that's from Train Spotting. Ah, should have recognized. You should have,
1: yeah. Well, there's a fair amount on the menu tonight. Firstly, I'd like to say thank you to all the folks who came out to the first Astonishing Meetup in New York City. On February 26th, you know who you are. You guys really made my night. It was such a great crowd, and meeting listeners for the first time was a wonderful experience, made better by how cool you folks are. All walks of life, age ranges, and interests, it was just a real thrill, especially hearing some of your creepy stories, including the ones, which was most of them, that you won't let me retell on the air. I was a little surprised we had no Men in Black or Devils in the Diner, but I think it's just as well. And next time, Forrest, you have got to be there.
0: Well, I would if I thought the thing was real. I'm not sure that actually happened, any of it. It could have been just a bunch of people all uh, cold together in some kind of flash mob to chisel some free drinks out of a Manhattan bar or something. I wouldn't put that past you. So. Oh, well, first of
1: all, the drinks weren't free. I see yeah. that you're trying to make it was like the, uh, the moon landing. Right, right. We all paid yeah. for our drinks. Uh, oh, um, that's good. Next time, maybe if the show's doing better. But yeah. Here's the thing that you should know. A lot of people right. don't think you're real, so. Well,
0: then mission accomplished because that's exactly the vibe I'm trying to put out there, but... What other news do we have? Well, our new Squarespace website is up. So check it out. Our store is back online as
1: well. We're still ironing out a few minor kinks, including international shipping rates, which right now it says something crazy. Just email the store and we'll get it sorted out. We have our good friend Craig from Abnormal Allies is taking care of all our fulfillment there. And he'll be happy to help you if you have any questions about trying to place an order. Just email the store contact email address there. We're going to get all that sorted out with the shipping rates, and we have some layout tweaks to make to the site overall, but it's
0: pretty much there. The site is looking really good. Yes, and we are working on some cool new merchandise for the store as well, so keep an eye on things the next few weeks. Okay, so speaking of the greatest trick the devil ever pulled by making the world believe he didn't exist, have you heard anything from our dear Count of St. Germain?
1: Indeed, I have. He's been in touch, and tonight, the Count, known in his current iteration as talented actor, comedian, writer, producer, author, and director Kevin Pollock, has come back on the show to announce the winner of the contest to determine what profession his new persona should be when he decides the Kevin Pollock
0: thing has run its course. (laughs) Okay, well, excellent. I'm going to play back your conversation with him right now.
1: All right, so we're back here with Kevin Pollock, also known as the Count of St. Germain, which we managed to figure out through careful research and photographic comparisons. And uh, you guys may remember that when he was last on the show, he invited you to come up with some suggestions for the next iteration of the count when he decides to retire the Kevin Pollack mantle. So, uh, Kevin, I trust you've had a chance to look over what all the listeners sent in? Oh, yes, I have. All right. (laughs) So how are you feeling about the entries there? Did you find one that was a favorite for you?
2: Well, that's a relative question. I felt that much of the efforts on the part of the fans were fantastic. But the few exceptions, I don't want to say there's a few apples that spoiled the entire barrel or bunch (laughs) or otherwise known container. But man, oh man, did people go out of their way to spoil them. (laughs) Uh, There were only a few, there were only a few spoilers and uh, I shun them. I shun them. I will not acknowledge them. I will say try again. (laughs)
1: Um,
2: There were several that delighted me, but unfortunately we can only pick one winner, shall we say?
1: All right. Is that a thing?
2: Yeah, that's a thing. It's a winner. Yeah. All right. Where is this wonderful, wonderful email? You know, there are a lot of very flowery descriptions. And then this person, A.J. Sanchez, had one simple sentence. I mean, there are paragraphs upon paragraphs (laughs) that people wrote. And I want to thank most of them for their efforts. But A.J. Sanchez simply wrote, and should I read it now? Yes, please do. Since the count is immortal, I would like to see him be a stuntman. Now, not only is this a winner, but... It is, in fact, what I've decided to do.
1: Excellent. So next time around, you'll still be able to make films, but maybe you'll be able to do something a little more exciting.
2: I think it's time I get out of the limelight Was what A.J. Sanchez was suggesting, and I took it to heart.
1: Excellent. All right. So, yeah. uh, AJ, you will be getting an autographed copy of Kevin's book, How I Slept My Way to the Middle. So we'll That's get you... right. That's right. <laughs> and if the
2: stuntman ever writes a book, it will be How I Slept My Way off of any marquee and or one sheet.
1: <laughs> Do you have any uh, feel for when you're going to uh, wrap up your current persona and maybe make this reappearance?
2: I feel like I got another good 10 years in me. So I might have to stay... In the groove, as it were, for another 10 years. I just got a green light on the next film for me to direct. Excellent. I'm sure I mentioned the one I recently directed, The Late Bloomer, is currently available on Netflix, but if not there, I mentioned it. Yes. I kind of want to dig this directing groove a little bit longer, but I am taking it to heart. I am applauding the effort of A.J. Sanchez, and I am following his instructions. Well, it could be her. I don't know. A.J. Sanchez could easily be her.
1: Uh, That's him, her.
2: Thank thank you.
1: (laughs) Well, thank you so much for the idea of the contest and taking a look at all of these suggestions. We really appreciate your coming on the show and being so honest about the fact that you actually are the Count of St. Germain. It's going to put a longstanding mystery to rest, or as we like to say, we've solved it.
2: You did solve it. And I can't tell you how much I appreciate your efforts, your fans' efforts to help me relieve myself of this endless burden. That has finally come to an end. And you'll get AJ's mailing address and all that to handle the book. I want to make sure that he or she gets the book right away.
1: Yes, absolutely.
2: Fantastic.
1: Thanks a lot, Kevin. And congrats on your new project. That's awesome. Thanks
2: very much. And again, thank you and all of your fans for your uh, your relief. I really do appreciate it. Uh, <laughs> it's been a hell of a burden through many lifetimes. Man, I didn't realize this was going to be so glaringly obvious. With a side-by-side comparison, otherwise I might have changed things a little bit more. I may have to go with some sort of stuntman who's disfigured in the face, yeah, uh, so that this sort of thing doesn't come around again.
1: Yes, that's a good idea. That's a good idea. All right. Well, thanks very much for coming on the show. We appreciate it.
2: My pleasure.
0: Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. Miami radio couldn't find us on radar, and my dad grabbed the microphone from me and he started screaming at the guy. What the hell do you mean you don't know our position? We just got this brand new transponder installed. Pilot Bruce Gernon's dad to air traffic control at Miami International Airport after they'd flown through an anomaly of some kind. Join us tonight as we take a look at a bizarre phenomenon
1: known as electronic fog. Right. Okay. So, when this story took place, I was uh, about a year old. Yeah, that makes sense. December nineteen seventy. <laughs> Experiencing normal time.
0: Yes. Uh, perceptions.
1: Yes. Yes. And this is a fascinating story to me. This is one we've been wanting to do for a while. This is the story of a pilot named Bruce Gernan, who actually just one day prior to when this took place, he had been attending a memorial service. Dedicated to the lost pilots of the
0: famous Bermuda Triangle disappearance of Flight 19. Also famously recreated or mystery solved in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Yes, that's right. 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 I, I love that opening scene where they start up the planes that were missing. Yes. Like they had just been landed there. You know, he mentioned this, the date in the interview we had just now. But it didn't really fully sink in. It's like, wow, 25 years almost to the day. Yeah,
1: this event took place one day before the 25th anniversary of the disappearance of Flight 19. And it took place more or less in the same part of the world. Right. Also known as the Bermuda Triangle. (laughs) One corner of it, yes. So on that day, he and his father had flown to the Bahamas because they were real estate investors. And they had a partner on board named Chuck Lafayette. And they were due to return back from the island of Andros in the Bahamas, in their brand new Beechcraft Bonanza A36 plane. Now, Bruce is an experienced pilot. At this point, he was only about 20-something years old. He was in the prime of his life, and his
0: father was also a licensed pilot. Yeah, his father was the senior pilot, kind of guiding him, but Bruce had full control Of the plane and was very well trusted by his dad, who was acting as navigator at the
1: time. That's right. So they took off from Andros Island, and they were planning to fly directly towards Bimini and then to Palm Beach International Airport, which was their final destination. So on this trip back from Andros Island, they encountered a strange storm, which Bruce wound up calling a time storm, where they entered a tunnel, which he will describe very accurately here in a moment. And as they emerged from the other side of the tunnel, they were 30 minutes ahead of schedule and 80 miles closer to where they thought they should be based on their charts and navigation. Which by what we know
0: should be impossible.
1: And the great thing about Bruce is he was a young man at the time in his 20s, he kept a chart, he documented everything that happened because he knew that it was important and we have that chart and we will be sharing it with our listeners as a link. I'm actually have pulled it into Photoshop to highlight some areas and it will help you follow along at home kids while you listen to this interview. So if you're not in a car doing your commute or on the subway or you hear this part before you go print this thing out, you should take a look at it because it's, it's very interesting. For me anyway, I'm kind of a map person to look at it as he's telling the story. But the chart will show you just how crazy it is, what happened to him, and everything is very well documented. So tonight we're going to talk to Bruce himself about what happened from his point of view. He was in his 20s at the time, he's a bit older now, but he has been obsessed with this story himself ever since then. Something similar even happened to him Again, later in life when he was flying with his wife, and he'll talk about that some as well. All right, then. Let's get to the interview.
3: Hello. This is Bruce Gernon. I'm going to give some information for Scott. Appreciate him having me on. I'm going on 71 years old now, so I'm like semi-retired, and I've been a pilot ever since I was 17. But just recently, uh, I'm not flying much as I used to. I've been active all those years, but now my eyes are starting to bother me a little bit. My vision not being nearly as good as it was when I was young. Uh, When I was young, my vision was 2010 when I had this experience in the Bermuda Triangle. So I could see things that most people weren't able to see at that time. So over the years, I've... uh, Studied construction and had degrees in building construction, and I studied uh, physical science and physics in college. Recently, I got my master boat captain's license, so I've been doing more boating instead of flying. I sold my last airplane, owned seven of them over the years, but I've owned a lot more boats than that, so that's keeping me busy, but my passion has been the research of the Bermuda Triangle. Ever since 1970, when I had this experience while returning from Mandosa Island in the Bahamas, returning to uh, Palm Beach, Florida, I had an incredible experience. So I spent a lot of time memorizing it because I knew someday it may be important for all the world to know about. And so now it's become my passion to study and keep researching. It's a great mystery, still a great mystery, not recognized by mainstream science yet. So it's kind of a challenge for me to... uh, Pursue my research, but I, I know that someday this will be recognized by mainstream science. Back in the early 1970s, I used to do a lot of flying in the Bahamas. I well, actually it was starting in the, the mid 60s when I first started going there. I went there about once a month with my dad. We were business partners in construction development, and we were planning on building a resort on one of the Bahama islands. So. We would fly to the Bahamas and we checked out almost every major island in the Bahamas in search of some good real estate. My dad seemed to like Andros Island the most, so we made a deal with the English Parliament back then. They were going to give us this island called Big Wood Key, which was right in the middle of Andros. If we developed it, they would let us have the island. So it was a heck of a deal, so we were in the process of purchasing the island and we would fly there. Oh, about once a week, we'd go there, making preparations to do the uh, resort. It was on this day of 1970, December 4th, when we were returning from there. We had spent the night there, and I was flying uh, our airplane. I was the chief pilot, and Dale was the licensed pilot. but He was the co-pilot, and we had a business partner with us, Chuck Lafayette. So there were three of us, and we had planned on leaving first thing in the morning from the airport that day. Uh, Andros was called fresh creek it's pretty much in the middle of Andros, near the tongue of the ocean the deep water offshore and that's where Altec has a navy base there also and that's known as a mysterious area they call it the underwater area
1: 51 oh really i'm gonna have to read up on it that's interesting
3: yeah it's an interesting area where they uh experiment with their submarines and it's top secret we couldn't leave in the morning because there was rain it wasn't a uh lightning storm, but it was a rainstorm, And the rain was like medium intensity, steady. So visibility was probably only about a mile. And so we decided we'd wait it out. But back then, we couldn't get any weather reports on that island, they didn't even have a phone on the whole island back then. We have modern weather reports that my friend, the scientist, David Paris, has discovered that showed that the weather was clear in between Andros and Florida, but there, over Andros, the entire island was covered with a, a large rainstorm. It finally started to let up early in the afternoon, so we, we got ready to head out, and we went to the airport, and we actually lifted off at exactly 3 p.m. I noted that with my watch right on liftoff. We climbed to 1,000 a, a feet because the ceiling was about 1,500 feet, so we had to stay under the storm. It was still a light when we were taking off.
1: How far is the island from where you were flying to?
3: We were flying uh, direct to Bimini and then direct to Palm Beach International Airport, which would be 210 miles. The flight that we took though ended up to be more like 250 miles because we had to do four deviations. Okay. We couldn't fly direct because of what we encountered.
0: Man, how cool is our new website? Pretty darn cool, I gotta say. But after looking through some of Squarespace's templates last year, I knew our image was about to get an upgrade.
1: You know, our original website was pretty cool, but as the show grew and more people began to visit it, there was no question we needed something better. So we decided to make our next move with Squarespace. And now, well now, our website is epic. It really has become next level. Not only does it look better, it's easier to manage, right? much. It's actually been hard for me to put into words how thrilled I am with the new Squarespace setup. There's so much great stuff about it. I couldn't figure out what to say in this spot. For example, working with ad agencies for years, you know, I I became a design snob by Osmosis.
0: Translation, nitpicky
1: jerk. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I guess so. But the award-winning designer templates Squarespace has just look amazing. Not only are they beautiful, elegant, and leading-edge design-wise, they're super dynamic, automatically adjusting themselves for various mobile platforms, and they couldn't be easier to work with on the back end. I love that we can now embed video loops in our headers, and that all the graphics are perfect executions of flat design, which is where everything is heading visually
0: these days. They also seem to know what you want before you do. For example, we thought, wouldn't it be cool if we could add a calendar of events? And after about a 15-second search on the Squarespace back end, there it was. And within a couple of clicks, it was live.
1: Five minutes after that, I had show release dates plugged in with cool pictures and rollover pop-up descriptions. I would have spent days trying to execute that on our old website, but with Squarespace, it was pretty much done before we even
0: had the idea. Which allows us to focus on the next pressing thing, so we have more time to work on the show and manage our business. And Squarespace's 24-7 customer support is also
1: award-winning, and they're fully transparent Easy to set up, all-in-one platform means there's nothing for you to install, patch, or upgrade ever. They take care of the complicated
0: stuff for you. Don't wait to make your next move. Get your own unique domain name before someone else does and make your own beautiful website with Squarespace. Make your next beautiful
1: website now. Use the promo code LEGENDS at checkout for
0: 10% off any website subscription or domain purchase at squarespace.com. That promo code again is L-E-G-E-N-D-S. Squarespace, make your next move.
3: Forrest and Scott, thank you for supporting their sponsors. I'm Ian Ulam, now back to the show.
1: Okay, at this time you might wish to refer to your charts. Unless, of course, you're driving, (laughs) please do not, texting is bad enough, please do not be looking at an aeronautical chart.
0: No, and if you... (laughs) especially if you print it out on giant blueprint size sheets here. So that's what I would do. I would be pulling yeah. over on the side of the road. All right, right. let's roll this out on the hood. Dion. Yeah, well, I see. It looks like in the movies where you got your light table and your grease pencils and yes. your protractors
1: and all that. Yeah.
0: yeah, oh, the Star Wars. They got the clear plastic
1: board. You it's do like, the clear plastic ones. Yeah. But there's
0: a reason for that. So you can clearly see where you're going. That's why it's so important when you see that in submarine movies and naval battle movies to chart where you're going. So... Bruce has generously given his where he's charted everything. So that's kind of why, if you're following along in this story, to go to the website or take a look at this chart that we're offering. It only
1: only appears in one other place on the internet. So we were lucky to get a hold of it.
0: Yeah. When you look at this map, it shows clearly where he left from Andrews Island and where exactly the outer ring of this electronic fog phenomenon starts to happen, and just the distances he had to go.
1: And he's going to get more specific about what he encountered later, but one thing that you will notice on the chart, and it's very clearly indicated, and also I've highlighted it to make it a little easier to read in Photoshop, but you will see how his course was heading straight for Bimini, and about halfway between Andros and Bimini, he turned due south for a short time, three minutes actually, before turning back on course towards Miami International Airport, which I'd like to point out the airport abbreviation for Miami International Airport is (laughs) (laughs) MIA.
0: Missing in action. I mean, it's
1: the corner of the Bermuda Triangle here, people. Well, Um,
0: yes, I'm sure they don't like to think about that aspect of it. Yeah.
1: So anyway, he turns south for three minutes and then he turns back to the northwest, more west than north, to get towards MIA, and you can see on the chart exactly where he's going. So if you have any difficulty following this visually as he's talking about it, uh, definitely take a look at the chart later when you can, or if you're able to look at it while you're listening to the show. It's it's one of the first times we've had a visual aid that goes along with the actual program. Right, right.
0: That is clearly helpful. Yeah. Sure. All right. Let's get back to the interview. So
3: we stayed over the island at 1,000 feet, and then uh, we reached the western shoreline of the island we were stationed on the eastern shoreline and the island's like 40 miles wide and as we approached the ocean which is the area of the great bahama bank i could see that the storm was ending apparently it was just over the the main island of andros and it looked nice and clear out over the great bahama bank then i uh i noticed there was a strange cloud hovering over the ocean. It was only maybe 500 feet above the ocean, and it looked like a lenticular cloud. That's a cloud that usually forms only at high altitudes and has smooth edges. And this cloud was maybe a mile long, 1,000 feet thick, and a quarter mile wide. It looked harmless, and it was just hovering right there, really. There wasn't much wind that day, though. Winds were light and variable. It looked like it would not be a problem, but it was directly in front of our flight path, which was direct to Bimini, and we were using our electronic instruments and the compass to go direct to Bimini.
1: What was your aircraft?
3: It was a brand-new, really beautiful Bonanza Beechcraft A36, which is still in production today. The airframe is is identical to the 1970 model that we had. Uh, Of course, there's a lot of technological improvements that you really can't be seeing until you take a really good look at it, but mostly inside it. Basic airframe still the same. It's a classic airplane, and we climbed up uh, over this cloud, thinking it would be no problem. So I started ascending from a thousand feet. And I planned on going to ten thousand five hundred feet and leveling off. As we climbed up over the storm, it wasn't a storm. It was just a ventricular type of cloud. At the time, I really didn't have time to think about it being an unusual cloud. Uh, because normally you never see a cloud like that at a low altitude. As I got up to a few thousand feet, I was able to contact Miami on the radio and uh, file our flight plan. And I got a weather report, and they said it was clear in between uh, Andros Island and Miami. But there were a few large scattered storms over the shoreline of uh, Florida and inland over the Everglades. So that sounded okay. And after I finished filing the flight plan, I look out and check out this cloud that we had flown over and it was completely different than what it was like when I went over it. So I don't know if I triggered this cloud to do this by the vibrations of the airplane or what, or just a coincidence. I thought that uh, maybe I had just flown over the birth of a cumulonimbus thunderstorm that is known to be able to develop quite rapidly.
1: What was the position of the cloud at this point when you noticed that it had changed relative to your aircraft?
3: It was a few miles offshore of Andros Island over the Great Bahama Bank.
1: But behind you?
3: Well, no, it was in front of me. Oh, okay. When I first saw it. And then I went and climbed up over it. Right. I didn't study very closely while I was climbing over it because I was busy following the flight plan. So then when I finished that... I looked around me, and I um, couldn't believe what I'm seeing here. It's like, what's going on? This cloud is building up and at the same pace that we're climbing, and we're climbing at 1,000 feet per minute.
1: Right, so it's all around you at this point when you're noticing this change.
3: Yeah, it's, okay. it's below me.
1: Okay. And
3: so then I keep climbing up to 6,000 or more, and, uh, and then it catches up to me, and the airplane goes inside the cloud. And... It looked like a typical cloud with very low visibility, you know, only 100 feet or so, just a pure white area. But apparently it's building up rapidly. So what would happen is it gave the plane a boost of air, like a cushion that boosted us up and we'd break free of the cloud. So then I'd get maybe two or 300 feet above the cloud and then start to settle down again. After that boost, and then the cloud would catch up to me again, i go back inside the cloud. This went on maybe four or five times, and uh, when we got to, like, 11,000 feet, my dad suggested that we turn around and go back to Andros.
1: How many miles were you from Andros at this point?
3: Well, at this point, we'd be about 50 miles or so, between 40 to 50 miles.
1: Were you guys concerned yet? Were you having a discussion about it in the plane?
3: I don't remember discussing that much until my dad started making the suggestion that we turn around. Then we started talking. I didn't want to do it because that would mean that I'd have to fly back through this cloud, and I'd probably end up being in it instead of above it. And I wouldn't be able to get too high because we didn't have oxygen.
1: How high could you go before that was a concern?
3: Well, I could go up to maybe 15,000, but then I couldn't stay there. 15,000 long at all, just only a few minutes, and I'd have to come back down to under 12,000 to be legal. Okay. I told him, Dad, okay, maybe we're going to do it. Just give me a little more time. And then, and then when we got to 11,500 feet, we broke free of the storm. I leveled off. We're in clear air again. And I look around me, and I, I can't believe what I'm looking at. This storm... It wasn't a storm, but it is now. The cloud had expanded and it turned into not just a cumulonimbus isolated thunderstorm, it was a huge squall. As far as I could see on either side of me, this ability of about 10 miles, that would be a total of 20 miles, I could see this curved squall behind the aircraft. And I noticed it was kind of unusual because it was curved so perfectly. But I didn't think about it too long because I was relieved that we broke free. Put the plane on autopilot, leveled off, and kind of sat back and relaxed. You know, took a deep breath and was, you know, really happy now, cruising at 11,500. Sure. I kept it at that altitude while we cruised. I really didn't think about that storm that we had just experienced. But thinking back many years later, probably after I thought about it and researched it, it was like I was climbing at 1,000 feet per minute, but I didn't realize that the storm was rapidly expanding so fast, it's incredible, because I was going at a forward speed of 105 miles an hour, and this storm was going faster than that. I never got ahead of it. Right. It was spreading out faster forward with me than 105 miles an hour, but also it was spreading out laterally on either side of me at an incredible rate. Something like, I estimate, maybe 300 miles an hour. Wow. How fast it was spreading out. But it wouldn't be a 300-mile-an-hour wind. It would be more like a 300-mile-an-hour ignition of this cloud igniting and spreading out. Kind of like if you uh, took a gasoline and, and poured a circle of gas, and then you lit one end, spread out at a rapid rate to the other end. Never thought of that. How fast would that spread be if you did that with gasoline? Would it be close to three hundred miles an hour?
1: Oh, that's a good question. We have a research group and we have somebody in it who we can probably find that out. He particularly likes setting things on fire, so we can maybe <laughs> maybe we can find that out.
3: There could be a, a relationship with that ratio of speed of ignition. So I call this storm a time storm or the mother storm that can create the ton of vortex and electronic fog. So anyway, I'm cruising now at 195 miles an hour. I had been flying for 10 minutes while I was ascending.
1: Since you left Andros?
3: 20 minutes since I left Andros. Okay. I flew for another six minutes at 11,500 feet. When I got about 10 miles or, or less, in front of me I see the other side of this storm. I didn't know it was connected for sure because I didn't see the whole storm. But apparently, it was. And I'm looking in front of me now, and here's this storm that had perfectly curved edges, forming like a semicircle. Only now, it's facing in front of me instead of behind me. And now, it had built up to maybe 50,000 feet high. I also noticed that it was laying right on the surface of the ocean. and had no ceiling like a normal cloud. So I couldn't fly over it, and I couldn't fly under it. I'm using the instruments to fly direct to Bimini this whole time. And so I maintained course and went ahead and penetrated into it. The visibility wasn't that bad. I felt like I could have gone on until these lightning flashes started shooting off. Really intense lightning flashes. They weren't lightning bolts, they were flashes. And, And the deeper I penetrated into the storm, the more intense they became. It's almost like day and night. At one point, and that's when I decided it was just too intense. I made a sharp turn to the left, started heading due south. See, I had been heading on a northwest heading. Sure. And so I turned left and then popped back out of the cloud into the clear opening. And right at that time, contacted the Miami radio again and told them my situation, told them I had encountered a squaw, and I had deviated from my flight path, and I was about 45 miles east of Miami when I made that deviation. And then I was going to see if I could fly around the edge of this storm. So I'm I'm heading south for a couple of minutes, and uh, then I see that the storm was still in front of me. I'm looking at the curve again, and now it's still south of me. So then I realized, wait a minute, this storm is like a giant donut-shaped storm.
1: It's all around you.
3: Yeah, all around me. So I couldn't fly around it. Trapped in the center of it. So then I noticed where two ends had met each other. They were on the opposite end of where the storm had formed. So it's like back to that gasoline thing where it connects on the other end. Sure. I saw it connect on the bottom first. So then there was like a big valley, like a U-shaped valley on the top. And so I figured... I'll head for that and shoot through this valley because that would take me right to South Florida, Miami
1: area. You're flying south at this point, and this was off to the west a little bit or the southwest?
3: That's right. It was off to the west.
1: Okay. And that looked like a safe place to try to get through or the safest place you could pick anyway.
3: Yeah, or the only place. And So I'd been flying for two minutes, three minutes, so I talked with my dad and we discussed it about flying through the opening, and uh, so he agreed that it would be a good idea.
1: How's Mr. Lafayette doing at this point? Is he calm?
3: Yeah, yeah, he's he's doing good. Okay, good. I start aiming for the opening, and then these two big anvil heads form, one on each side of that valley I was telling you about. And then the anvil heads connect on the top. So now it's formed a horizontal tunnel in between the storm, and the storm looked like it was about 10 miles wide, the squall. So now there's like a 10 mile long tunnel going through the storm. It was huge at first. I figured, well, there'd still be plenty of time. So I noticed it was a little bit lower than us. We were at 11,500. And so the center of the tunnel was right at 10,000 feet. I started diving down and then I realized that it seemed to be closing kind of fast. So I took it to maximum power to the red line at two hundred and twenty miles an hour and aim right for the center of the tunnel. And it took me about a minute to get there. So I've been flying ten minutes over Andros, ten minutes of climbing, six minutes of level off.
1: You're referencing your chart now.
3: Yeah, three minutes heading south, one minute to enter the mouth. So that's thirty minutes. I've been flying thirty minutes when I enter the tunnel and um about almost 100 miles southeast of Miami over the Great Bahama Bank. And when I entered the tunnel, it had reduced its size to less than 1,000 feet, maybe 600, 800 feet. I really kind of miscalculated about flying through it because 10 miles would take me like three minutes to get out of the other end of the tunnel. It was closing rapidly.
1: Was there lightning around you, not in the tunnel, but around the edges?
3: No, no, I didn't notice any. You know, I had already penetrated into it. At 10,000 feet, there was incredible electricity going on. When I entered the mouth of the tunnel, something incredible happened. No one's really figured it out yet. Why? these strange lines formed within the tunnel. And what formed the lines were these small puffs of clouds. And each cloud was varied in size a little bit, but they were, most of them, about the size of, say, like a, a small bus. Why that happened is something that's incredible, whatever it was. I'll never forget that event. It happened instantly. The airplane penetrated the tunnel. What I believe I was seeing was the fabric of space-time.
1: Can you be clearer on what the lines exactly looked like? Were they stripes?
3: Yeah, you know, well, it was like looking. Yeah, but they were curved, and it was like looking down a rifle barrel. Uh huh. Like on that movie, remember? Uh, yes, James yes, Tom.
1: yes. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, sure.
3: They had a huge rifle barrel opening scenes, tiny little hole that you're looking through in a rifle barrel. They had this huge rifle barrel. So yeah, the lines were very similar to that, but they were like broken up. Though they weren't solid, like the lines in a rifle barrel. And they were broken up, but they were formed by a series of small small clouds that were hovering about 10 to 20 feet off the walls of the tunnel. So why I'd say it's the fabric of time that I was seeing is because it should have taken me three minutes to reach the other end of the tunnel.
1: At 220 miles an hour.
3: Yeah, but it only took 20 seconds. So time is coming into effect now, space and time. Right. They're warping. And when I reached the other end of the tunnel, it had reduced its size to about 30 feet. Because the wingtips scraped the edges of it, and the wings were 36 feet. I looked back after we made it out, supposedly into clear air. The uh, tunnel collapsed right behind the plane. That's how close it was in timing it formed like a slit, and now the slit was rotating clockwise because as i flew through the tunnel it was rotating counterclockwise right and this is the point where i had this sensation that i'll never forget that i have experienced only once and it's similar to zero gravity i experienced that many many times zero gravity but this was like a combination of hydroplaning getting forward in zero gravity at the same time. And it lasted about almost ten seconds. And at the same time the clear blue sky that we had just entered disappeared. And everything was this dull grey color. Maybe a little bit of yellow in it. Visibility was nil. It was very strange because the sky actually appeared to be clear. No clouds or anything and yet I couldn't see the horizon or the ocean didn't look right. I wasn't sure if it was the ocean or not.
1: Yeah. Are you guys still calm at this point? Because I'm telling there's about four or five times I've already would have tried to jump out of the plane, I think.
3: <laughs> yeah, they started to get real upset, uh, my dad and our passenger. So I calmed them down. I told my dad to give me a position fix. He was our navigator.
1: And how old were you at this time? I was
3: 23. Okay. Dad was around 65, early 60s. And Chuck was in his 40s. So my dad was fumbling around with the instruments. You know, I took a quick look at him, and for some reason I couldn't figure out our position. So I asked my dad, and he couldn't figure out our position, which was very unusual because he was really good at it. So then I take a better look at the instruments, and the magnetic compass, the wet whiskey compass, is slowly rotating counterclockwise. And I'm not making any turns. It's just rotating by itself, maybe 5 or 10 RPMs. Hmm. And then the uh, electronic navigational instruments were all malfunctioning. So we couldn't use our instrumentation to identify our position, but I knew we were probably uh, about 90 miles east of Miami when we came out of the tunnel. So I contacted Miami Radio. I guess I must have told them I wasn't sure of our position. Now, I know I told them we were 90 miles southeast of Miami, but I think I probably said, but I'm not sure. Sure.
0: You know, I was thinking, a lot of the topics we cover are really way out there, but even the most fantastical stories usually have a background in history or science, like tonight's topic deals with the science of extreme weather, which is a lecture series over at The Great Courses Plus.
1: If you're not in a weather-created space-time warp tunnel and your internet access and your whiskey compass are still working, you can learn wherever you go, which is how we love watching The Great Courses Plus.
0: That's right. And speaking of mobile learning, we're excited to tell you about a new way you can take advantage of a free one-month trial of The Great Courses Plus and get unlimited access to over 8,000 video lectures on everything from extreme science to the Vikings, which are hot right now, to how to take better pictures. Just text the word LEGENDS to 86
1: And you'll receive a link to sign up, so you can start watching immediately from your smartphone, tablet, or any device. So Scott, tell everyone about the new course we're watching. Absolutely. It's called The Black Death, The World's Most Devastating Plague, taught by Professor Dorsey Armstrong. Remember, she's the one who taught us everything about the legend of King Arthur.
0: Of course. She's fantastic. A really engaging lecturer. I just followed her on Twitter. You can do that? Well, yeah. These courses are taught by real people who are real award-winning experts. All right, smart guy.
1: (laughs) Tell us something about the event that killed off almost half the population of medieval
0: Eurasia and changed the course of Western civilization. Yeah, it's mind-blowing how devastating the Black Death was throughout The centuries. So many people were dying and so fast. It really was like the Monty Python bring out your dead sketch. Well, there are two major misconceptions about the Black Death, and one is that it was called that because parts of the bodies of the people that contracted it actually turned black. People always associate bubonic plague with a black death, but bubonic is just one strain of the plague that creates large lumps, or buboes, around the lymph nodes. So they assume black death refers to the color of those buboes, which is not the case. Okay, you know what? I, I wonder... We should tweet this
1: to Professor Armstrong, but I wonder if the <laughs> oh. term boo-boo, yeah. like when a baby hurts yeah. itself, is, comes from boobos. That's that's, <laughs> that's pretty fascinating if it's, if it's a case. Uh, I would not doubt that. Anyway, the other misconception was that the people of the time named it the Black Death, but no one in the Middle Ages actually called it that. They called it the Great Mortality or the Great Pestilence. As Professor Armstrong said, it was a dark, black, terrifying time. Look, there's a good chance you're listening to us on your smartphone right now.
0: So take a second to text the word LEGENDS to 86329. To get the reply text, standard message and data rates apply. One last time, text LEGENDS to 86329 to receive this free month offer for The Great Courses Plus.
2: Hello, this is the Count of St. Germain, otherwise known as Kevin Pollack, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Keep listening.
1: All right, so he's really been through something here. It's pretty amazing. Well, three people have. Yeah. (laughs)
0: That are confirming what he experienced.
1: And I love that they mentioned specifically what time they took off, that he actually looked at his watch and he wrote it down. He's very diligent in terms of his...
0: Piloting skills. Well, and yeah, navigation. that's. Well, I do know a few pilots and they all do. And I believe it's a requirement to keep a log. Same thing with sailors, as you know. Yes. You, you keep a captain's log. As we saw with the Mary Celeste, they keep very detailed notes of everything that happens. Yes. So he noted on his watch, he left at 3 p.m. The other thing I like about this story is that it's a regular airport. They also have an idea of when planes take off and land. That's right. It is documented when he left and. When he arrives in Miami. Yes.
1: And what's happening here that I think is important, and the reason that I wanted to break in here just real briefly, is he's saying that he was pretty sure they were 90 miles east of Miami, which they should have been. Right. But they weren't. And that's when the problems began. And it's because whatever (laughs) happened when they went through that tube, that's something that so far to date has still not been explained for him, to his satisfaction or anyone else's. And it really comes down to when he took off, how long he flew, the course changes he made, and how close he was to Miami
0: when he emerged from that storm system. Right. It's the same thing if you drove to Vegas from LA, let's say, for example. Even if you drive fast, takes you about three and a half, four hours at a certain rate of time. And then you realize you get there in two hours. Like, well, I wasn't doing 200 miles an hour. That's impossible in my car. And yet you're in Vegas. Two hours later. Right, exactly. An hour early. So that's what happened to Bruce and his passengers in the sky. They arrive and that's why they're bewildered. It's like, well, where are we? The other great thing about this story is that the people who experience this perhaps and don't survive or get found again, that's why the story from Bruce is important with this phenomenon because he is a trained observer, you could say. And I know people will say like, well, why do we give more credence to pilots and uh, military people? Because they do this. They're, again, like the unlike the average person who's not paying attention when they drive to Vegas too much, other than, you know, sticking on I-15 and heading east. The deal is, as a pilot, you are trained to notice conditions, weather, time, distance, airspeed, Knots, all that stuff so he's paying attention that's what we're saying as he says is a very sober account
3: and so that he must have picked up there was something wrong so he tried to identify us on his radar and he couldn't find us on radar he said he didn't know airplanes at that time in between miami and andros island so that didn't help any and so at that point that's where my dad grabbed the microphone from me and, and he started screaming at the guy you mean you don't know our position. He said, we just got this brand new transponder installed. Supposed to be able to identify us with it. That didn't help. And uh, so he starts yelling at the guy, I could see he was going into panic. Because you don't do that over the radio. Never swear. Right. So I grabbed my back from him and told the guy, everything's okay. We're just going to maintain our course and see what happens. I calmed my dad down. And then our passenger in the back, he starts telling me some things. He's slurring his words. I don't think Man, what the heck's going on here? He was getting nauseous, I guess. We were in what I call an electronic fog, and it has been known to make people pass out. So he was probably on the verge of doing that, because he couldn't even make any sense with his words. So I remember saying to myself, okay, I'm going to have to just subtract him from my mind and (laughs) make believe he's not even in the plane, because uh, he's just distracting me, and uh, that didn't help any. And so I totally ignored him. So we kept flying, and uh, we flew for uh, three minutes after we exited the tunnel, when another amazing thing happened. I call it an electronic dissipation of the electronic fog. These slits formed all around the airplane, parallel to the direction of flight. The slits appeared to be maybe a mile away or so, and I was like almost two miles high and they appeared to be a few miles long. But I find out after no much research that that was an illusion. That the slits were actually close to the airplane. And then what happened was, you know, maybe 100 yards, and the slits slowly started opening up. And just before they opened up wider and wider, the radar controller got on the microphone and now he's yelling, yelling out. And he has an airplane directly over Miami Beach. And there had been radio silence for that whole two and a half minutes or so. Even the commercial planes were kind of probably listening to see what was going to happen. And I told them nothing to my watch. I said, well, no, that's impossible. I'm still probably 80 miles east of Miami right now. And so then the slits opened up wider and wider until all the fog was gone and it was all blue sky. And it only took like about 10 seconds for that to happen. And at first, it took a few seconds for my eyes to adjust from the dull gray to the bright blue. And I looked down below me, and I'm directly over Miami Beach. I tell the controller, yeah, he's right. I'm over Miami. That's great. Still at 10,000 feet. I said, all right, I'll go to Palm Beach. He says, "Uh, you want me to stay with you? I said, no, I'll be fine. I'll make it to Palm Beach. We're going to Palm Beach, which is north of us now, like 50 miles. Here's a huge storm over Fort Lauderdale and another huge storm over the Everglades. So I had to descend from 10,000 all the way down to only 500 feet to go in between the two storms, which formed like a bridge out way out over the Everglades, and 30 miles, 40 miles out west over the Everglades. There was like a bridge connecting the two storms, which was a little less than 1,000 feet. That's why I had to go all the way down to 500 to fly in between the two storms, and then uh, head back northeast to Palm Beach International. So then we touched down around 3.47, and then about a minute later, then I taxi up to the customs and check out the watches, and I look at it. Wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. Now, the time was 3.48, and I had taken off at 3 o'clock, so I'd been flying. The trip only took 47 minutes of flight time, and I had probably traveled 250 miles instead of the 200. And I had made that flight you know, a dozen times before, and it always took an hour and uh, 20 minutes. It took like uh, you know, 90 minutes. So somehow I got 30 minutes or so ahead of time, and I went through that tunnel. And the latest theory is from Professor Paris, who has worked with me on this. He's a scientist from the University of Nebraska. He thinks that when I came out of that tunnel, I wasn't 90 miles east of Miami. I was 10 miles East of Miami, and then it took the normal three minutes in the electronic fog while that was going on to reach Miami. So apparently these tunnels—I call them a time tunnel vortex. They, I'm not like the only living person, anyway, that's flown through one, so I can still talk about it.
1: This is a basic calculation that I can't even do, but to go 250 miles in 47 minutes, what would have had to been your average speed?
3: I think it's over 300 miles an hour.
1: Right. Which your aircraft is not even capable of. No. And Miami Control saw you and had you on radar. So you went from Andros at 3 p.m. to West Palm Beach on this zigzag path. Because when you got to Bimini, you had to turn south. Then you had to go through the tunnel to the west. You popped out over Miami and then had to fly. You were going north to Palm Beach, but you had to deviate way over the Everglades to get through the two storms that were there. And then
3: deviate back to the northeast to Pau Beach International.
1: All of that in 47 minutes.
3: That's right.
1: With one passenger who's talking word salad and about to pass out, your dad yelling at the controller, the controller yelling at you guys. It's an amazing story. It's just...
3: The passenger recovered as soon as the electronic fog dissipated. That's good. The big question on time is when I entered the tunnel. I'm 100 miles from Miami. How did I get to Miami in 3 minutes
1: and 20 seconds? It's yeah, that's when you really would have had to... Go over uh, 2,000 miles an hour. Right, which is what, Mach 4 or 5 or something? That's <laughs> a question
3: if Professor Parrish is right. He says it just took me the 20 seconds to fly through the tunnel and travel. It would be uh, 90 miles.
1: The storm itself that caused all these deviations and all the work that you had to do to get through it, did you get the sense that that was sentient or it was just a natural occurrence that you were dealing with?
3: If it was natural, what's the other thing? Sentient,
1: like it was trying to trap you.
3: I've been told that, but I've never got that sense, though.
1: It was just something happening that you were trying to escape.
3: It was like fate. Some some kids just, I got through emailing me, I, the kids are really interested, fifth graders. Some of them ask really great questions. And others want me to do the report for them, so I usually go. <laughs> they asked me, was I thinking about a miracle when I flew through this time storm? I thought that was an interesting question.
1: That is an interesting question.
3: But looking back at it, it was like a miracle. And then they asked me you know, if I was scared, a little more intelligent than just scared, Answer to that was no, because at the time, see, I was only 23, and I actually had a, was a bad trait for a pilot. I felt like I was invulnerable. The expression no fear came out a couple of decades after that. Yeah. That's the way I was at that age. It's like I was really calm, cool, and collective when we went through the storm. Sure. But today it would be just the opposite.
1: Since then, in the intervening years that you flew well over 50 years, had you ever experienced anything else even remotely similar to this? And I'm sure you went back and forth several more times to the Bahamas. Did anything else even close ever happen?
3: Yes, I've been back many times by boat and plane. By boat lately, I've gone three times in the past six months. The uh, experience in 1996 relates to the electronic fog that I had when I was living in the Florida Keys at an airport community. And I flew into an area where several other pilots have had an experience with the electronic fog. That's a whole other story that would take a while for me to tell you. It's in my book, The Fog. It was not as intense as the time storm I flew through. But apparently these storms, I used to study them when I lived in the Keys. I could see the edge of the Everglades from the bay. I had a house on the bay, and and, uh, so I watched thunderstorms form almost every afternoon. And a lot of times, the two storms would form with the cells side by side, and then the anvil heads would connect, and they would form tunnels over this area of Florida. It's probably the stormiest area of all Florida. It's the southern tip of the Everglades. This would usually happen in the early evening. See, my theory is that when these tunnels form in between these powerful thunderstorms, I've seen many of them, too, studied them, photographed them. They usually last only three minutes, just like the one that I flew through. And what happens is when they collapse, they form what I call electronic fog, and it's like a sphere. Another good name for it would be a ball lightning cloud instead of just a small ball lightning. It'd be a big ball lightning, maybe 100 yards in diameter. And that sphere of electronic fog can drift around for just like other fogs, for many hours, maybe even half a day. Depending on the wind currents, it could drift upward to 80,000, 90,000 feet, or it could drift all the way down to the surface. So one morning in the, in the, in the Keys, I took off, and when I reached the ever, tip of the Everglades, this electronic fog connected to us, and my wife was with me at that time. And uh, it wasn't strong enough to envelop the entire airplane, but it stayed underneath us, and I thought that this fog had just formed, because fog can't form instantly, and I just happened to be over it. It's a little low on fuel. I mean, I had enough to make it to my destination, but once I saw this fog, I got worried that I may have to go someplace else to land. It looked like it went as far as I could see, and again, this is another illusion that this fog formed. The reason is because I never realized both times, in 1970 and 1996, that the fog was connected to the aircraft, kind of like St. Elmo's fire. Okay, sure. It took me 30 years of research to finally realize that. And that's why an illusion is formed when you're in it. Because being trained as a pilot, you think you're flying through this fog. You don't realize you're flying with it. So your mind doesn't conceive properly and, and, and an illusion can form. So I'm thinking this fog goes on forever. And so I call... Uh, the Miami radio again, and got a hold of the weather department. And I told him about the fog, and I wanted to know, you know, how extensive is it? You know, I wasn't sure if I could make it to my airport, which was Miami International. And, uh, and he says, what well, what fog are you talking about? And I said, the fog, it's all around us. He says, there's no fog reported anywhere in Florida. And so that kind of helped me years later to realize that it was attached to me. And then another strange thing happened. It formed a hole in the fog directly underneath the aircraft. And I'm not the only pilot that has seen this. There's another famous pilot named Martin Caden, uh, a great aviation author that experienced the fog that had the openings in it, just like the one I flew through, just like the one I flew over the second time. And so this tunnel underneath me was about the same diameter as the airplane. And then, so I look through it, and I can see the Everglades below the airplane, and it looks like the Everglades is moving the same speed as the airplane. And I'm thinking, Man, this is a strange event here. Uh, this hole in the fog must be somehow kind of like connected to the airplane and it's moving with the airplane wherever it goes over the fog. It, but I didn't realize the fog was attached to me, so it wasn't cutting through the fog like I was thinking. It was just staying stationary with the fog. So anyway, I, at that point, I got a hunch to head for the ocean. I thought maybe I could get away from this fog. When I was heading north and made a right turn the east and started heading for Biscayne Bay, south of Miami. As I got closer to the bay, the hole started getting wider. And so I I started to feel some relief. And then when I reached the ocean, the hole was so wide that the only thing that was left was like a ring around the airplane. Again, here's another illusion that formed. I'm looking at this ring around the plane and I'm thinking, what is it, two or three miles away from us? Or five miles. And then another strange thing, Whenever I'd look through the ring against the cloud as a background or some of the earth, there would be a gap in what I was seeing. Kind of like look, when you look through a camera, zoom lens or telescopic where you have a split screen and then you get it to
1: line up. It's lensing, creating some kind of lens that's altering what you're seeing.
3: Similar to that, there was there would be a gap in the line. And I think this gap, again, has something to do with time. I think I was seeing the fabric of time. Even when I made it back to Palm Beach, and when I'm on final, down the 50 feet above the runway, I'm looking around, and I can still see this rain around the airplane. I'm strange. And then it disappeared as soon as we touched down. So then, like, four years later, I finally figured out that it was attached to us. And it's something I try to warn pilots, But it's like, it's hard to get the word out in mainstream science. It's like, if a pilot gets caught in this electronic fog and he's over the ocean, he should aim for a mainland, because that's where it attached to me the first time I got caught. And then, it's apparently, it's just the opposite. If you're over a mainland, like I was over the Everglades, head for a large body of water, and it should detach from you. So if pilots, maybe someday we'll learn that. It's one of the maneuvers to make when they run into electronic
1: fog. Do you think that the fog creates itself under certain conditions, or do you think it's the, a byproduct of some other phenomenon, like the colliding storms.
3: Definitely a byproduct of the two storms running into each other, forming a horizontal tunnel. With all this energy all around the tunnel, as the tunnel swirls, it creates like a time warp, something that can affect time.
1: The book made an indication that this, something similar to this may have been recreated in a laboratory setting. Do you know anything about that?
3: Well, there was this scientist, well-known, and it became known as the Hutchison Effect. Now, some people try to debunk him saying, well, he, he never really created it. You know, I talked to him back then, and uh, he's not able to create it again because he's kind of a different kind of scientist. I guess,
1: <laughs> right. Drugs
3: or something, you know, and then he forgot how to do it. But <laughs> you know, He had pictures of it, and uh, he thought for sure that it was electronic fog, the same thing. That I experienced. It was like a silver mist that it created in the laboratory. And it did strange things, like go through a wall or something, or change materials and melt things. Some strange stuff, which you don't hear from them anymore. But they still mention the Hutchison effect. So maybe it can be created in the laboratory someday.
1: What's his full name?
3: Professor David Paris. He teaches physics, and he's a meteorologist for like 40 years. Okay. Air Force meteorologist. I've got a new book coming out. It's going to be called Beyond the Bermuda Triangle. It'll be available in bookstores probably in August. Oh, great. The publisher's going to really do a major marketing production uh, to try to promote it. So hopefully it'll do well because I I, I think it's really important for people to find out mainly about electronic fog. I've had hundreds of people contact me that have experienced electronic fog. And so there's a lot of stories in the new book of people that have had experiences with this.
1: Even in your book, in your book from 2000 when you first published it, there's a mention of possible connection to Flight 19 and also some events that Charles Lindbergh experienced.
3: Yeah. So now I think there's a connection to that Malaysian flight that disappeared.
1: That's something I wanted to ask you about. Do you feel like there's something going on that might have connected to MH370?
3: Absolutely, just like I do with Flight 19. There's similarities, and with
1: Lindbergh, too, Uh,
3: when it attached to them, all their instruments start malfunctioning, and, and even their radio didn't work. The Malaysian flight, they tried to go higher, so did Lindbergh. The believe 19 did, too, to see if they get above it. It won't detach, and they don't know it's attached. And then they flew low, and uh, they couldn't get under it. So, and this is almost unheard of for the Malaysian flight. They, they went above their legal altitude at 777. I believe it's only allowed to cruise at uh, just over 30,000 feet. They went up to uh, close to 45,000 feet. not supposed to be going that high. And then they went down low. That didn't work. And the first turn they made was toward an airport that they would have been able to land at, which would make sense. Then they go through a series of turns. Now, Lindbergh, he didn't do that. He was so intelligent, he was able to figure out a way to escape it. But the others, they never figured it out. They went through a series of turns another thing I want pilots to understand if they're caught in this electronic fog only make one turn and that depends where it's attached to you, you know. and then either turn to the mainland or turn to the main body of water because once you make two turns you're going to start to lose your sense of direction and then if you make three which they all made over three turns now you've got to start guessing which way is north and south you have, you have absolutely no idea anymore you're going to lose track because none of your electronic instruments are going to work, and even your old-fashioned whiskey compass is not going to help you, even in a modern airplane, because once all the electronics go out, you can't navigate.
1: Do you feel that when a plane gets caught in this, if it can't shake free of this, that it might crash like MH370, or that it might, similar to what happened to you, be slingshotted somewhere that it, it wasn't expecting, especially if it's back out to sea or something like that, and... It's unrecoverable at that point because there's no way to get a bearing and you just run out of fuel and that's it?
3: That's what happened to Flight 19 in Malaysia. They just kept going to the rail. These guys are really great pilots and they were able to maintain level flight. But what happens is if you're not that sharp a pilot, you become spatially disoriented. It's like not your fault. I mean, you could be a pretty good pilot, but the fog induces this. You start to get a little dizzy because you're so upset. That you can't figure out where to head. That uh, what's called the graveyard spin. You can't pull out of once you get into it. You start winding down, straight down, spinning while you're doing that. And then if you try to pull out of, just make the turn even steeper because then oh, pull out! You're going too fast now. That's happened to many, many pilots.
1: It's like a spiral, right? Spiral, right?
3: The spatial disorientation. They lose their sense of turning. They get to the point where they're not sure if they're turning flying level.
1: There's a story, and the specifics on it escape me right now, but I feel like I heard it on NPR at some point, but I can't remember. A story of a pilot who lost his way a little bit, and at some point he looked down and saw an airport, but the people that were working on the ground were out of time. They were from another time period. They were wearing uniforms from the future, yellow coveralls, where at the time they were wearing a different color. Have you ever heard that story? That story is explained in detail in my new book. Oh, it is. Wonderful. Wow, I'm excited about this book. Was it So it's out in August? It should be on the
3: bookshelves in August. First book is really related just to the Bermuda Triangle, but this phenomenon happens all over the world. It's not just the Bermuda Triangle.
1: When your book comes out, if you're interested, we'd be happy to have you back on the show if you want to talk about that.
3: That'd be great.
1: Well, Bruce, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. I really appreciate it.
3: Thanks for having me, Scott. I appreciate that, too.
1: Thank you very much. Bye. If you've been paying attention, you'll know that technology is profoundly changing the marketplace,
0: and in turn, it's dramatically altering the labor force, too. I agree. I think that trends as obvious as it is inevitable. But before we're all totally ruled by our robot overlords, one thing will never change, and that is the success of any business depends on hiring the right people. That's just a fact. And to find the perfect hires, you need to post on all the top job sites. So let the online technology of ZipRecruiter do that for you. With a single click, ZipRecruiter.com can post your opening to over 200-plus job sites, as well as social media networks like Facebook and Twitter. Because no matter what your business is, you increase your chances of finding good people by broadening your search as much as possible. And speaking of broadening your search, ZipRecruiter
1: will search every city or industry for you nationwide. Just post
0: once and watch your qualified candidates roll in to ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. So once you've put out the call to the whole country for your staffing needs, whether it's a major corporation or your home-based business, how do you organize all your responses? Well, ZipRecruiter lets you quickly screen candidates, rate them in your dashboard, and hire the right person fast. So no more juggling phone calls to your personal line or buried emails. Try it out and see why ZipRecruiter has been used by Fortune 100 companies and thousands of small and medium-sized businesses. Because right now, astonishing Legends listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com/Legends. That's ZipRecruiter.com/Legends. One more time to try it for free: go to ZipRecruiter.com/Legends.
3: I'm Kristen DeWitt, and this is Astonishing Legends, the best podcast around. Let's get back to the show.
0: Well, that was a really fascinating interview, and I've only talked to a few people personally or listen to that have a genuine time slip story, maybe not as well documented as this either.
1: Yeah. I mean, it was a very sober experience. He was at a very sober point in his life yeah. when he was dealing with this. He was young. I just remember I was thinking about how I had kind of a fast car, uh, not in college, but <laughs> yeah. after college. And I still have that car because I, I enjoy it. But the difference between how I operate it now and how in touch I am with it in my environment and how I did when I was in my 20s is like night and day. And that's the thing I want our listeners to remember is that the point at which Bruce was in his life, as he said himself in the interview, he was feeling kind of invincible and he was writing everything down. (laughs) And I'm (laughs) sure he thought that nothing could happen in that plane that he couldn't deal with, which is what he said himself. I'm not casting right. versions on his character. He
0: also said it was kind of a dangerous attitude for a pilot because Absolutely. you shouldn't rely on your feeling of invincibility at 27. By the way, I want to add, yeah. as, as somebody who used to ride, it's a dangerous attitude for motorcyclists as well. So if you're yeah. feeling that way, yeah. check yourself. Any, any Imagine anything. <laughs> Just, yeah, you in your 20s, you millennials, you. Yeah. You can't get hurt or disappear yeah. into a time slipstream. <laughs> he not only is at the height of his senses, being a young man with 2010 vision. Yeah, 2010. Yeah, pretty good eagle eye there. But he's also got his father with him as Navigator, a very seasoned, licensed pilot who knows what he's doing. And it's funny, the turnabout is, as you heard in the interview, that Bruce himself, is he'll figure it out. He'll get through this. He just needs to get his bearings. Dad, on the other hand, is starting to freak out a little because this should not be happening. Yeah. There's no reason for this in all of rationality. So... That's why I think he's a little more animated and uh, a little more flustered because he realizes, again, through experience, as we do as we've gotten older, like you can get yourself into trouble, and they may be in some deep trouble right here. Yeah. And and, and, and Mr. Lafayette is just queasy in the back. Yeah,
1: queasy yeah. And, and talking word salad right. there for a minute. Yeah. Um, although he did pull himself together. I, I don't
0: wish to paint him as no, the— No, uh, but this brings up an interesting question. As soon as the fog lifts or they clear it, he seems to immediately get better. Yeah. So is that just an effect on certain people? As some people don't do well on certain rides, they get nauseous or they get seasick or they're affected by uh, all various forms of natural stimuli. I can
1: relate. You know, I used to be a day sailor. I don't sail so much anymore, but yeah. um,
0: I myself had
1: seasickness problems. And <laughs> in right. fact, one time famously, I was taking a trip with my dad from uh, Marina del Rey to Catalina. Yeah. And I had uh, one of those patches on the scopolamine.
0: Oh, did, did it work?
1: It worked great. It was working <laughs> yeah. so good that I thought, actually it wasn't doing anything and i just wasn't seasick so i tore it off Oh dear and And then about 15 minutes (laughs) i was green in the gills yeah
0: (laughs) it's a a, i think i may have had it once and it's incapacitating and it lasts for a long time that's why i said that his comment was very unusual in that as soon as they got through it he immediately got better but you would think if he's prone to that maybe it's the jostling it's also kind of a violent intense type of storm experience and he's certainly flown a lot at this point. But, and when being you know. in a private plane is a unique experience
1: as well. I've only done it once myself. Yeah. Yeah. I had a friend who had a plane, a commercial director, and he yeah. let me fly it a little bit for a minute, which I don't know what possessed him to do that. No.
0: Well, you notice but, um, that it's hard to keep level. I've done yeah. it myself a little bit.
1: I was okay with the wheel, it was the foot pedals that were screwing me yeah.
0: up. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, well, it's, that's what I'm saying. It takes a lot of practice to keep the thing level. So I have a lot of respect for pilots, but it's also, you know, the trim wheel is where they kind of level it out. Yeah. But this is what's interesting in that he, experienced this twice now in two different forms. One very intense with light flashes, I guess you could call it lightning flashes, like almost like a St. Elmo's fire, some kind of electrical storm of sorts. And in a milder setting with his wife. So it happens and he's not the only pilot in that area that this happens to, obviously.
1: Yeah, and I do want to touch on again because I know it can be hard to follow, especially if you're not a you know map piloty person. There's a lot going on here. I just wanted to touch again on some of the things about his trip that need to be understood. One is that he noted his exact liftoff time at 3 p.m. Right. He had a plan. His flight plan was to fly directly to Bimini and then from there directly to Palm Beach International Airport. Right. And that's a total trip of about 210 miles. And generally, it takes about 90 minutes. He's made it dozens of times. Right. Prior to this, they've been going back and forth trying to figure out if they're going to build these resorts in the Bahamas, which, I mean, talk about ahead of your time, by the way.
0: Oh, yeah. I was like, well, That was a good plan. <laughs> y- yeah. No, it's they realized the area is very nice. And I think he said about once a month they would go fly down there to check out the property. And I think they were trying to work a deal with the British government. Right. And he knew this trip backwards and forwards. And as he said,
1: this trip should have been 210 miles. It wound up being 250 miles because they had to take four deviations. And all of that's on his chart. And you can see the chart, which we've already mentioned. So I also think it's interesting that they went a good little ways, but within about 50 miles, they talked about turning back. They had enough concerns because when they saw the clouds in front of them and they were climbing and then the clouds kept pushing them up higher and higher and higher. He's getting concerned about their altitude, the oxygen, and then the clouds keep swallowing the plane and then pushing them up and swallowing the plane. They're like a plaything in this system.
0: Well, they're being tossed around. It's like a second ocean. They were a boat, but in the sky, giant waves are tossing them, except that these waves are clouds. And so as he's describing this they're getting pushed higher and higher. And, and as he also mentioned, a lot of pilots will try and climb higher and higher, but you are limited by either the machine or FAA rules. You're really not supposed to do that, as he said. Yeah, or your ability to breathe. <laughs> you really ability to breathe, <laughs> because at a certain point, you're going to need artificial oxygen Or you try and fly underneath it. I think he said it went all the way down to the water surface. He said it had no
1: ceiling. The ceiling was on the floor, which is, you know, which is great when you're having a dance song, but it's it's (laughs) not so good. (laughs) Dancing on the ceiling? Is that what you're talking about? I don't know what I'm talking about. It was a horrible reference. But anyway, the point is it went all the way down to the floor, so you couldn't fly under it unless you wanted to crash into the ocean. And here's
0: the next uh, dangerous thing. Some pilots get into trouble because they'll make a few turns. Yes. And he says... His advice, again, make one turn. That way, now you don't lose track because you can get easily turned around.
1: Yeah, when you start making two turns, if your compass is spinning, and I love this term, and this was new to me because I'm not a pilot, but yeah. the Whiskey Compass or the, the Wet whiskey. whiskey Compass, which <laughs> yeah. I guess they call it the Whiskey Compass because the dial is in alcohol. Oh, um, y- yeah. And right. I had to look that up. But, <laughs> so if I'm wrong, I only found one website that told me the answer to that. Well, if hard. you're
0: shipwrecked and you need a drink, you know where to find it. Yeah, one. in your
1: Whiskey yeah. Compass. In your but, Whiskey Compass. But
0: you got to save that for the life raft.
1: Yeah, there's, the, a, there's a bunch to of different things, make out of the
0: yes. coconut trees. Or your freckle cream. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, with your oh, one shoe. Yeah, yeah. So here's what's documented. He makes a note that he takes off at 3 p.m. from the Bahamas. At 3.47, he makes contact and lands at Palm Beach International. That's correct. 47 minutes later, this trip should have taken 90. And so they know when he makes contact, his father gets PBI on the radio, air traffic control. Yes. At a Palm Beach. That's documented. So either he was able to travel over 300 miles an hour in a plane that's only top speed is about 220 redlining it. That's right. Something happened here. Something Again, did happen.
1: And another thing to understand if you're not looking at the chart, and eventually I hope that you do get a chance to look at it, is that the storm, it's kind of like a hurricane and that it's shaped like a donut. And it has what seems like an eye in the middle, which is when he first described, he kind of thought he was in the clear, but then he realized on the horizon There was the other side of the storm. He was completely surrounded by this storm that is going all the way down to the water and up to unbelievable heights too high for him to even fly over. Yeah. And so now he's noticing that it's not a complete ring. In some ways, you would think of it—it's funny, I think about the ship in Alien— and also yeah. in uh, Prometheus, right. that's sort of a U shape or a horseshoe, horseshoe shape. Shaped, yes. But there's an opening at the end, and right. he's inside of that ring, and he's like, I've got to get out this opening. But as he's going towards it, like every great science fiction movie, <laughs> every it's escape. closing up.
0: Yeah, it's like in Independence Day, you're trying to get the UFO out of the mothership, yeah. and of course the doors are closing. They're closing. There's you an aperture. Tilt yeah, you are always going to tilt it. It's like the Millennium Falcon. You got to tilt it on its side, squeeze out like a coin in a slot machine. Well, and that's what happened
1: to him. You yeah. know, we headed for this tunnel, and the tunnel was closing down. and For him, the tunnel appeared to be 10 miles long. Right, right. And he's got a pretty good record of judging distance. Of course, on the other hand, he did say that later, the slits that appeared next to the plane that he thought were
0: several miles long, actually, that was an optical illusion. They were much closer to the plane. Ribbons of cloud, he could say, like ribs of, of some sort. When you read up on these kind of incidents, especially with airplanes and time slip stories, That storm is often described in the same way, little variations. But as he mentioned, or I guess as you guys mentioned, the story of Air Marshal Sir Victor Goddard of the British Royal Air Force. And that was when he flew through the storm and had a very similar experience, at least with a storm, in a plane. So this happened in 1935, as I said, and he was on his way from Edinburgh, Scotland, to his home base in Andover, England. And he decided he was going to fly over the airfield at Drem not far from Edinburgh. So as he's doing this, he encounters a storm. And this is where I saw the similarities. It's kind of a violent storm, strange looking clouds that are kind of brown and yellow. And then also the yellow coloration reminded me of Bruce's description along with the matte gray and the weird matte gray sky, which should have been blue. Uh, so he gets through that, but he his plane starts spiraling down. He almost crashes. He manages to pull out, and then he's in the eye of the storm, like a lot of hurricanes. You get into a center spiral vortex of some sort, the middle of the jelly donut, and he looks up and it's bright blue, beautiful sky. And that's when he looks down, and he sees the airfield, but it's different because suddenly now it's in working condition, where in his day, in 1935, it's derelict. But there are four airplanes on the ground, Three of them are yellow. One's a monoplane, meaning, you know, the single wing. Which hadn't been invented yet. Which they did not have at that time. Now they would four years later, along with the mechanics in the blue jumpsuits, which at his time in 1935 were brown. So he wasn't quite sure what he was seeing. Here's four airplanes that are now painted yellow. That seem familiar. He recognizes those because those are biplanes, except one monoplane. So that's pretty strange. And the other thing is that he's flying low enough that these mechanics should look up, as everyone does. This is close to wartime here. At least they got through World War I. None of them looked up. He said, well, that's strange. They're not noticing me. It's pretty loud and noisy. So that was odd. And then he goes through the other (laughs) – It reminds me of a
1: quote from (laughs) I Hate to Pull Young Guns Out, and I'm not going to use all the words in this quote. But it's like, how how come they ain't shooting at (laughs) us?
0: We're in the spirit world. They can't see us. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Well, that's, uh, yeah, the ships and the the local uh, indigenous peoples not seeing the ships. That's that whole story. Like, well, they're busy, you know, working at the beach. They didn't have time to look up in ships. Right. Foreign ships. I would say, like, look, that's the law of boating and planes. You wave. Everybody waves. You just do that. You notice it. So anyway, he flies uh, through the outer edge of the storm, gets back. He's back on track again. So, and then he didn't realize later until four years later, 1939, that what he'd seen may have been the future. It came to
1: pass. All right, well, you know what's interesting to me about this, and this only just now occurring to me, I wish I had asked Bruce about it to see if it's something that he had thought about before, but in the case of that particular storm, which is very similar, there's a couple of things about the commonality between what Sir Victor Goddard experienced and what Bruce may have experienced. Imagine this, it could be possible that Bruce and his passengers in the eye of the storm had slipped time as well, but they would have no way to know that being over the ocean. Exactly. There would be no frame of reference. So that could be an added side effect of the phenomenon that he never would have discovered or realized because they were just
0: flying over water. Right. There's no visual reference. It's all kind of the same. Except that he notices that these clouds are moving much faster than clouds usually do. That's why it was hard to gauge, but he said like the rate of uh, gasoline in a puddle igniting or a ring of gasoline yes. racing down that line igniting itself. But that's what's strange to me is that if this is a regular storm, you usually don't get chased by clouds. Yeah. Well, But it, as he said, it's also an illusion because
1: they're moving with you. Well, and here's the other question. I wonder with the Sir Victor Goddard's story, and we want to do an episode, we always talk about episodes later, <laughs> and <if laughs> right. people are actually started drinking games about that. But the, yeah. I would love to do one more specifically about time slips, which I think was probably what Bruce's next book is about, what he was alluding to, but being nonspecific. Right. Might be more about time slips. And, and we're not talking about clocking in at work <laughs> and, and
0: the time cards. Yeah. No, what's interesting is that I've heard plenty of stories from people that have experienced them on the ground, and it doesn't require a storm. Sometimes it's just a strange being in a weird location. One of my favorite Jim Harrell campfire stories is a couple going in to see a movie, Hellboy. They go in, they sit down. Great flick. Yeah, and they go to sit down. They go like, well, that was weird. Why are we seeing the end credits? They'd lost like an hour and a half. And it just freaked them out. They came out, the guy said, hey, do you remember us? They, you know, He said, yeah, I tore your ticket. You came in here and you sat down an hour ago. It's like, we missed the whole movie. He's like, I don't, how to, I don't know what to tell you there, but... This happens, and I have a friend we may have mentioned before who has his own time slip experience driving somewhere. But they're hearing the elements of his story, that may be a totally different thing. Well, this, yeah. yeah.
1: I mean, these that involve the storms, and this is the question I have about the Sir Victor Goddard story is about whether or not when he came through the other side, if he had experienced a geographic time space bump like Bruce did. You mean shooting forward? Yeah. yeah. And he might have and just not documented it or not have recognized it. He may uh, not have. It was a more primitive it. time than right. flying. And he may have been so discombobulated by nearly crashing and seeing that stuff that he might have completely disregarded the fact that he advanced in both time and space when he came through the other side of the storm as well.
0: Right, because there's a lot of variables here that are interesting to think about. If you do like to think about time and uh, space slips, the time-space continuum here, because I asked this to Scott earlier, it's like if your perception of time just stops, say like the world clock, just somebody puts it on pause and you're still traveling at the same distance. Well, you have the experience of like, that was an hour, but you get, you look at your watch like, well, no, I just saved 40 minutes, I don't understand. However, their distance and time were both shortened. So you may think this is crazy, and he didn't know what he was talking about, or he's making this up so he can write a book. A lot of people say that and accuse people of that. In space, and I realize that this is on cosmic levels, but in a black hole, the same thing happens. A tremendous cosmic-sized Anomaly happens in that a star collapses, you know, a giant star sucked down to the size of a basketball, sucking in light, other suns, stars, planets, everything in its path, it's insatiable. But it's also sucking in time and gravity, I believe. So this is not impossible. It just doesn't happen here on Earth very much, but maybe it could. We always talk about movies probably too much,
1: but a good example of how that all works is Interstellar, if you haven't seen it. Yeah, no, no. they they, interesting uh, look at how time shifts when you add a
0: black hole into the mix. (laughs) Right, because it's standard (laughs) Einstein's theory of relativity. You know, you're traveling away from something time slows down essentially very basically and so people on earth they've aged 100 years and you're still 35 and looking like Matthew McConaughey all spring and chipper and handsome so that all that right, is all right all I right. <laughs> right, I'm still 40 <laughs> so that's uh, one principle that happens but what I was going to say when we look at anvil clouds yeah this is a very natural phenomenon. I've seen, a, I've never seen a really a lenticular cloud. I've seen kind of rolling bank clouds. So if you look this up, we'll certainly have photos of it, but go look that up on Wikipedia. It's, I've seen there, them. Absolutely, yeah, it's in, very in unusual. North Carolina. So what sure. he's saying is it's a confluence, uh, I work that word in as much as I can, of uh, several weather factors going on. So you have a lenticular or a strange cloud pattern, a storm, which is a, it's a very stormy area happening. And then at the end of this, like you said, the open horseshoe, you have these two anvil massive anvil stacked clouds coming together and maybe that is enough that that mix there it's not as powerful as a black hole certainly light is not escaping but maybe it's just powerful enough and there's enough electromagnetic disturbance that it is kind of screwing with time and maybe at least the distance part of it can be explained by interdimensionality just to clarify again i do want to come back before we move on a little bit to
1: some of the math associated with bruce's trip he went 250 miles in 47 minutes. In order to accomplish that, we've said this, he said this, and we probably said it a minute ago, but I just want to restate this. He would have had to do an average of 319 miles per hour in a plane whose top speed
0: is 220. Yeah, remember, he's redlining that thing. That engine is stressed to the maximum.
1: Right, and that that piece of information is regardless of the idea of what his position was when he came through the other side of the storm. Professor Paris seems to think that he was about 10 miles from Miami. Whether that's right or wrong, he still went about 250 miles in 47 minutes. Now, Paris also suggested that he essentially went, as he passed through the ring of the storm, the donut, as it were, as it was closing up, he went in three minutes and 20 seconds, he went 90 miles. That's what propelled him Closer to the coast of Miami. That is over 2,000 miles per hour <laughs> right. for Mach 2.3. Again, outside the operating envelope
0: of a Beechcraft <laughs> Bonanza A36. Yes, yeah, probably capable of. Well, Mach 2.3, I think a jet fighter can uh, do that. Uh, yes, it but. can. The Blackbird was 4.5, I think, or four. Yeah, that's like at the that. very. Uh, of that's known, the published. Yes, the published. Of, of known Black Ops aircraft, yeah. uh, uh, Skunk Works type vehicles. Imagine the things that we don't know about, maybe like the Aurora Project. Yeah. But again, this is a plane that operates not on jets, it's a prop plane. Yes. So it has its limits. Now, some people might say, well, if the compass was affected, why not the engine compartment? I think Dr. Paris's view was that that engine compartment was shielded. Yes. So of course, yes, it it requires a spark. It's a combustion engine and electricity, I guess, in a way with the capacitors, the spark plugs. So you, well, a lot of UFO stories, the car gets conked out. And then immediately starts back up as soon as the. Uh, yeah, the starting off. back
1: up part. We encountered the. What was the story with the fog that enveloped the car and it turned off? That was Linda, Linda Godfrey. Godfrey was, yes, that's one, From her book. That's correct. Yeah,
0: about the fog came up and then the car stopped operating. Yeah. Now, the ARC's very own Marie Mayhew was making some comments as this theme was being discussed today that possibly this fog was sentient and that it was chasing. Bruce's plane. Right. And you remember, I asked Bruce about that. He didn't have the sense that it was, but
1: the way that it was closing in on the plane, it is interesting. It did seem like it was trying to trap it. Right. But that can happen i know because i've lived through tornadoes and yeah.
0: hurricanes and it seems you like can feel changed. like it's after you <laughs> it's you can definitely feel that like destroying everything in its path <laughs> how could it be turning the same way my car is you yeah exa- no, it, exactly no exactly people uh, storm chasers will experience that you turn the car and then you realize that uh, we're now going to have to exceed the maximum speed of the car on a smooth road in a driving rain to get away from this thing yeah but i think what she was getting at at least the thought that came to me is that well it's a little like with linda godfrey and the famous trail cam incident here, where they tried to get something with a digital camera triggered by a motion detector. That's right. And they put bait out. they put it I think it was a dead deer. Yeah, out. well different. yeah, I think several different times and several different types of animals, and it was always taken in an instant. But all I could see is maybe out of the corner of the frame a, a fog, a fog, moved a down. mist. But no movement, no animal, nothing. And it happened so much, I think she- And they would find the carcass like 100 yards away the next day, or what was left of it. Right. So something carried it off. And again, some kind of strange mist. So maybe that's what she's talking about as far as it being- A carnivorous, sentient (laughs) dog. (laughs) some kind of, that has intelligent motion, at least, that it's trying to chase you away or snatch you up into another dimension. Well, you know what's interesting about this to me too, and you and I, we've,
1: we've both made no bones about our age. For us, when we were kids, the Bermuda Triangle was a lot
0: bigger deal than it is now. It was really part of the zeitgeist. (laughs) Haven't been able to say that in a few episodes. I'm glad you got to to work it in. (laughs) But you were absolutely right, my friend, because as we said before, as we mentioned with Madame Blavatsky and... The spiritualism movement and revival of the mid-19th century into about the 20s and 30s, that was a big time for occultism and spiritualism and seances and Ouija boards and all that kind of stuff. And it had a resurgence. Well, then you had the sobering effect of World War II, World War I and World War II happening. And then you had the common sense of the 50s. Like, let's uh, pull up our bootstraps and get this country back together and get the world in shape again. And then you experienced the crazy spirituality again of the 60s and the mind expansion and the hippie movement. And oh, this could, by the way, you know, I just to yeah. be fair predates both of us. I mean, <laughs> no,
1: like, I'm really like yeah. we're
0: this old and we remember the Bermuda Triangle, and then you're like in caveman times <laughs> when I was a boy <laughs> and we were, you know, pushing a rock around. The idea is I was born in mid 60s there, so I was a little young, but very ripe for the 70s, yeah, yeah, very aware of stuff. So, what I'm getting at is that you've gone through all the wacky, you know, crazy stuff of the 60s, and then by the 70s, it shifted, so now it was still kind of the age of Aquarius, and uh, but you had a lot of monumental books come out. Hal Lindsey's books about religion and uh, prophecy and end times and all kind of that stuff. You had great shows coming out, the late 70s, In Search Of. In Search Of, baby. Uh, Sci-fi was, yes, popular in the 50s, but it was kids stuff then. I love that I have
1: the In Search Of box set, and it's on DVD, and now DVDs are almost dead.
0: (laughs) At least you have it on record. (laughs) But that'll regain popularity here. Yeah. But what Scott is getting at, the 70s were kind of a revival again of Bigfoot, UFOs, Sasquatch, Times were changing again. Yeah, Close Encounters was coming out. And then the other
1: thing that was happening was Charles Berlitz, who was just one of the most fun authors to read. Well, the
0: travel book writer, that's what everybody knows him as,
1: usually. Yeah.
0: Language, and and I think some travel books.
1: Yeah. yeah. He wrote a book on the Bermuda Triangle that was a bestseller. That came out in 1974, and that probably really influenced uh, culture at large, especially in the United States, with regard to how it perceived the Bermuda Triangle. And the Bermuda Triangle is, to be frank, where this story takes place. And right. I think that it's important to note another one of my favorite little expressions. Yeah. It's important to note. <laughs> yeah, you know, Everything I say is so important. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it's important to note that Bruce's experience took place four years before that book came out. It right. took place, it was a precursor. In, yeah. in a way, it would be more the kind of event that would stir people to write things about the Bermuda Triangle. Now, this is something—I I did some research today on the Bermuda Triangle. This is not a Bermuda Triangle episode, yeah. but it does take place there. And one of the things I found that was interesting is a lot of people have talked about how statistically the disappearances in the triangle are consistent with disappearances at large— over all the world's oceans, you right. know, barring yes. Somali pirates in that sure. area. There's probably an uptick over there. <laughs> but right. My point is just that the best place to look for this is Lloyd's of London, who is the largest insurer of maritime operations. Right. And it turns out that in the Bermuda Triangle, their rates are consistent with the rest of the world. They okay. do not go up. And believe me, if more events were happening there, disappearances and that sort of thing, then the
0: rates would be higher. We've been criticized for this as well in the past. I think with the Queen Mary, it's saying that it's a corporate entity recognizing that there's something paranormal or strange happening. Well, no, and, and that adjusting. is- Adjusting, yeah. How, and the Queen Mary does that. Look, it's all about money. There's and, room. We, there's a room they <laughs> won't
1: take you in on the tour.
0: Yeah, and it's not so much that they think it's- But Of course, they're pumping it up a little and marketing that because that sells tours of the room but on the other hand, again, at the end of the day, it's about money. So if they're losing a bunch of cargo ships in the area, of course they're going to charge more money. Right. It's costing them out of pocket. That's not why they're in business to explore strange phenomena. It's about to generate more money as an insurance company. So that's interesting, though, that they don't raise their rates for travel. The rates don't go
1: up there. But this was my observation after right. coming across that information. I mean, I had sort of always heard – or not always heard, but for several years now that statistically there was no difference in disappearances in the Bermuda Triangle and the rest of the world. Yeah or the rest of the world's oceans. But the first thought that I had, of course, being co-host of Astonishing Legends is, that means the problem is everywhere. (laughs) It's (laughs) not that it's worse there. You can disappear (laughs) anywhere. And if you look at the missing 411, and I'm hoping that we'll get to interview uh, right, uh, David yes. Paulides this year. Yeah, that's uh, we got to right. reach out to him. But, and also the kinds of things that can happen at sea. And I, like I said, I used to be a day sailor. I have friends that were more major league sailors. But just being a day sailor, the stuff you have to learn just to charter a boat for a day right. will put the fear of God in you. When it About all the things that can go wrong in the ocean, explained and unexplained. There's yeah. plenty of unexplained disappearances. There's rogue waves, which we talked about in the Queen Mary episode. Right. There's all kinds of things that can happen. And it's reasonable to believe there's all kinds of things that we don't
0: understand, which is sort of what Bruce was saying exactly. about That's, this storm. It's not so crazy. I mean, this happens, uh, the spinning compass, sailors and pilots and people who put their lives at risk at traveling into space, what gives them comfort and courage is the consistency of it. You can read the stars. Those don't change. You can read your compass. There's always magnetic north. The brand new transponder you bought should be communicating your position. And when those things don't work, it's very disturbing. As Bruce said, it's like, uh, it's time to like, calm him down and <laughs> get the mic out of yeah, his mouth. Well, because you, you don't swear over You the get in big trouble yeah, oh, yeah. with the FAA. And if you ever heard your- H-E double <laughs> hockey stick is right. no good. Even when you know military pilots, when they're under fire, like keep it cool if you hear their you know air comm chatter. So this consistency, Consistency, these things being readable and being able to count on them, it's not such a leap in belief to think that in certain parts of this earth where this earth is a giant magnet <laughs> and there's molten metal churning at the core of it and uh, creating magnetic waves. And we're being bombarded by solar winds from outer space, causing the uh, aurora borealis these things are affecting us, and why isn't there a slight anomaly here and there? It makes total sense to me, and maybe there, it happens more in some places than others, but it's a very uncommon occurrence. As Bruce said, it's happened to him twice in his life now.
1: And here's the other interesting thing about this. What Goddard saw when he was in the eye of that storm and he looked down and it seemed like he was looking forward in time, that in itself is already an issue. When it comes to time travel and all the theories about it, everyone seems to think you can go back or look back, but you can't look forward. So what does that say? That's a fascinating story. Sure, sure. But here's the other thing, the fact that he wasn't acknowledged in that situation. It's why wasn't he acknowledged when this comes to the whole thing about um I think you and I have discussed it before in in terms of ghost theory uh, stone tapes the stone tape theory which yeah. I think even RadioLab might have done a story on I can't remember but just about how information it echoes and is absorbed by the environment mm, and yes. can, and can recur and I don't want to get down the whole stone tape no, thing No but, but right basically now, but just...
0: it's not as spooky as you think some ghosts are not ghosts they're echoes they're visual echoes of people and uh, other times like as... in the Queen Mary story Exactly what it is is the leftover of human energy in a certain pattern. and that, Which is yeah. why it seems to swell up at crossroads like we talked about in the
1: Mothman and uh, freeways and intersections and places of travel, taverns on long-traveled byways where there's this huge concentration of energy, hotels, all these people are coming, going bars. There's oh, it, yeah. There's a pattern here, people. It's like the Queen Mary's a double whammy. It was a ship and a hotel. Yeah. It's like everything <laughs> And is, saw
0: a lot of tremendous human emotion and that's one recurring thing that I have noticed is that they often say places like churches, hospitals, things that have seen a lot of joy and a lot of pain, theaters where people just act out a lot of human emotion. A lot of them are haunted or people will see strange spirits, but again, it may not be ghosts roaming the halls or the catwalks. So it's not just one reason. Like I said, it's not just the Bermuda Triangle being a alien hotspot where they're getting beamed to a mothership, although that's kind of fun because in Close Encounters, they they all come back except to all the people you loved are dead now. Yeah. Maybe it's something that's just very natural, a weather phenomenon. Again, when you have two massive storms colliding in a, in a ring and, and meeting at the end, it creates a tunnel. Not often, very rarely, but rare things happen in nature. And so maybe this isn't so woo-woo and out there, and that it's just a phenomenon that happens, but a lot of times planes go missing because simply the pilots or the sea captains get disoriented.
1: That's right, and that's something very important to say, and I I do want to talk about some other similar cases. The ARC dug up some very fascinating similar cases, one about a ship called the Mohican. Marie found a really cool article about that that I actually want to read to you guys, and we want to talk a little bit about the Lindbergh story that Bruce mentioned as well, But the other thing that's interesting about what you just said and that's interesting to me is that if a plane gets enveloped in a fog like this that attaches itself to the plane or is so pervasive and thick that the plane can't get out of it and becomes disoriented and all the navigation gear is malfunctioning and the whiskey compass is spinning and you take more than one turn and you get disoriented and if that turn you took Or the series of turns you took, if you made that mistake, isn't towards a place where you can land before you run out of fuel. Not only are you going to die, they're going to have no idea where to look for you. And if you you don't come out of the fog, it may not matter where they look for you because you might be in another dimension. (laughs) But let's say you do come out of it like he did, and instead of being pointed at Florida, like he was lucky enough to be pointed directly at Florida... You're pointed out to sea, and even if you realize that you can get back, you're so far out, you can't get back. And that brings us to what possibly happened to Flight 19, which I'm going to take this opportunity to let our listeners know is going to be our very next episode. Wow, okay. Yeah. There you go. So, right, I guess we have to do it now. Oh, right. and by the way, just quickly, for the listeners who are still with us in the middle of the show, <laughs> yeah. our new website has a calendar on it. And it, it's not like the most filled out calendar in the world, but it oh, does dear. project out a few weeks. So it will tell you when we have a dark week, and it will tell you of a pending topic if we have it figured out. We don't always – we're definitely showing our cards here because we don't always figure the topic out yeah, that far ahead I, I, of time, which yeah, we like. That's sure. the way we are. The topics yeah. choose us. But if you're, if you're wondering, oh, why didn't the show? Why, why didn't it come out this Friday? Yeah. Because we generally are three weeks on and one week off yeah. year-round because it's, to too hard to humanity. Humanity. <laughs> it's too hard to do it right. more than that with all yeah. the research and everything. There are variations in that to allow for the holidays at the end of the year or my son's spring break or, you know, God forbid one of us gets really ill. There, there will be changes. But for the most part, you will hear us three weeks in a row and then we'll have one dark week. Yeah. So, and also, I want to encourage everyone, there's a thing blowing up on Twitter Right now, it's a hashtag, and it's not just Twitter, but Twitter's a really good place for it, called Tripod. And it's T-R-Y-P-O-D. And it's something that you can use to recommend your favorite shows to other people who haven't listened to podcasts yet, because there's still an opportunity for people who are podcasters to get their shows out to a a larger audience, including us. So if you're on Twitter or Instagram or anywhere else that you can do a hashtag and you have a favorite show, Astonishing Legends, that you want to (laughs) put out for Tripod, put it out there. It helps shows like us get larger and it helps new and independent shows find audiences. And in the future, it's going to be a lot harder for those indie shows to get going because large networks and companies are
0: moving into the space. So the little guys need all the help they can get. Yes, the behind the great paywalls. But <laughs> no, I just got the tripod. I get it. Not with yeah. like the camera tripod, but no. try a podcast. Yeah, a of course. Well, very good. Thank you for that update. That was spectacular.
1: Tangent number 4022. So right. <laughs> let's roll it back here a little yeah. bit. Let's bring it back.
0: So here's a question to you before I forget to ask it. Is the cloud formation a natural thing that forms from the storm, or is the force that's creating these time slip causing the clouds? You know I'm, saying? I'm, like, gonna, like I'm gonna pouring- lean in for my answer to this. Are you oh ready? dear. Okay. Well let me, here's a here's a, a visual. It's like pouring cold milk or cream into your hot coffee, and you'll see the thermodynamic process where it's roiling yeah. the clouds. So is something else causing this time slip, like an interdimensional slip, which I believe sometimes happens on terrestrial ground, and that because there's no storm. It happens there. in Utah. Yeah. <laughs> <Skinwalker> <laughs> I'll tell Ridge. you that for nothing. <laughs> yeah, there's tunnels that open up, uh, apparently, but there's no storm involved. It's not, it doesn't seem to be electromagnetic. No, just angry orbs. A- angry orbs and guys wanting to take a, a little tourist visit into, uh, I guess, the desert of Utah. Maybe that's a different cause or, or not at all. Who knows? But here, this could be, again, a weather phenomenon that's causing it. Well, I think that's
1: what Bruce thinks. I yes, don't know. I, yeah. The truth is, I don't know the answer to that question. I don't know why you're asking me, because I, well, no, I don't I know. Well, no, I just about.
0: thought, like, what's your opinion? Because the clouds, to me, are acting, they're moving very fast and very strangely. Yeah. yeah again, I'm, I'm not a meteorologist, so I don't know how fast, really, clouds can move, or what's the what are the extremes well, in the like upper a, atmosphere like that? It's
1: like, like, like a that. tsunami move at sea at least several hundred miles an hour. Sure. You would certainly define that as strange if the only surf you'd ever seen was at the beach and you were fishing. Sure, sure. So I think it is possible for a natural phenomenon to produce produce something like that that right. would appear to be strange. I do think that it is possible that the electrical energy generated by a large storm system like that, especially in an environment that's conducive to producing these particular types of storms, which is what Bruce thinks. And yeah. another thing that he had mentioned to me in his emails is, I don't know if now, but at one point he was living in the Keys right. and, a, and his house pointed at the Everglades. It like yeah. looked north and he saw them forming regularly. Right. Right. Over the southern tip of the Everglades, which he thinks is a hotspot for these. It reminds me of that area, and I can't remember where it is now, some lake. I remember seeing pictures on Reddit about it, where it's the most lightning of anywhere on Earth. And there's people that live there, and it's just every night there's a thunderstorm with like 10 million lightning strikes. Things happen. There's environments where strange things happen. Yes. Do I believe this could be a side effect of a natural phenomenon, as Bruce seems to believe? I do. Do I think it's sentient fog, which is also the name of Marie's new band <laughs> from the right. arc? Was um, you, sentient whiskey fog. Sentient yeah. whiskey fog. Senti whiskey, sentient whiskey, carnivorous fog. There you go. I up. don't necessarily think this is a sentient phenomenon or a manipulated phenomenon, unlike you would say if you believe in crop circles, there's clearly a, a work of intelligence there. It seems to be, sure. And yeah. it's it's not like arrival. Don't know if anybody saw that, but the way that those creatures communicated in arrival is very fascinating. But you would recognize if you saw that, even if it didn't make sense to you that right. something intelligent was happening. Yes. And I don't think that's necessarily what was happening here. I don't think it was out to get Bruce or out to force him to experience something or necessarily out to trap his plane, but I do believe that something happened.
0: Ah, much like the final countdown, swallowing the aircraft carrier. Yes. uh, Captained by Kirk Douglas. Yes. No, that's another phenomenon that happened. That's kind of, and again, for the time, great visual effects, which is just basically the laser tunnel with the smoke. But it looks kind of cool. Yeah. And that one was described as... A giant ship an aircraft carrier going through some kind of time storm which is getting back to what bruce was saying how how he described it it's a storm of another element of another force of the universe
1: well speaking of time i want to go back in time right now and talk about a couple of other incidents that marie dug up that were maritime incidents and not aviation right right? and and in the same area Okay, so in a minute, we're going to talk a little bit about the Charles Lindbergh incident, which Bruce mentions in the book, which I think is really fascinating and worth telling because, as you said, talk about a trained observer. He's one of the top aviators of all time.
0: All aviators have a lot of respect for what he did yes. and when he did it, which is amazing.
1: Yes, and but before we get to that, I want to specifically read an article that Marie from The Ark dug up. From the Washington Times, this is dated August 2nd, 1904. Oh. There's going to be a lot of things here that are going to sound kind of familiar to everybody. The title of the article is, Ship Clad in Vapor Frightens the Crew. Strange experience of sailors on the steamer Mohican near the Delaware breakwater, compass disabled. So check this story out. Uh-huh. Philadelphia, PA. By the way, the Delaware breakwater is up where the Delaware River flows into the ocean. It's pretty far north yeah. of the area we're talking about. But listen to the scenario. Was that anywhere near where the dead water incident
0: happened? I can't remember where the dead water incident was. Quickly, that's just a ship seeming to not move No in wind, no, no current, no, yeah. nothing. Yeah. Stationary, yeah. yeah. So maybe that's a little part of a, this distance collapsing here. Well, yeah. here we go. When the British steamer Mohican, Captain Urquhart,
1: from Ibralia, Romania in this port, was making for the Delaware breakwater it had a most remarkable experience, which terrorized the crew, played havoc with the ship's compass, and brought the vessel to a standstill for nearly half an hour. For that length of time, the Mohican was enshrouded in a strange metallic vapor, which glowed like phosphorus. The entire vessel looked as if it were on fire and the sailors flitted about the deck like glowing phantoms. The cloud has a strange magnetic effect on the vessel. For the needle of the compass revolved with the speed of an electric motor, and the sailors were unable to raise pieces of steel from the magnetized decks. It was shortly after the sun had gone, Captain Urquhart said. The sea was almost as level as a parlor carpet, and scarcely a breeze ruffled the water. It was slowly growing dark when the lookout saw a strange gray cloud in the southeast. At first it appeared as a speck out on the horizon, but it rapidly came nearer and was soon as large as a balloon. Now, this, that to me is very familiar to what Bruce talked about. Yeah, About absolutely. this kind of balloon. Right, like you said, a balloon drifting. Yeah, that it could go, it made me think of a hot air balloon and how the environment takes it where it needs to go and it could last for hours and hours. And right. It's very interesting. You and just
0: happen to, unfortunately, be in the path of it.
1: Exactly. It had a peculiar gray tinge, and as it bore down upon us, we saw bright glowing spots on its mass. Suddenly, the cloud enveloped the ship, and the Mohican blazed forth like a ship on fire. And from stem to stern and topmast to keel, everything was tinged with the strange glow. The seamen were in terror. Their hair stood straight on end, not from the fright so much as from the magnetic power of the cloud. They rushed about the deck in consternation, and the more they rushed about, the more excited they became. I tried to calm them, but the situation was beyond me. I looked at the needle and it was flying around like an electric fan. I ordered several of the crew to move some iron chains that were lying on the deck, thinking it would distract their attention. But the sailors could not budge the chains, although they did not weigh more than 75 pounds each. Everything was magnetized. And chains, bolts, spikes, and bars were as tight on the deck as if they had been riveted there. For half an hour, we were enveloped in that mysterious vapor, and for nearly all that time, after the sailor's first cries of fright had subsided, there was a great silence over everything that only added to the terror. I tried to talk, but the words refused to leave my lips. The density of the cloud was so great that it would not carry sound. Suddenly, the cloud began to lift. The phosphorescent glow of the ship and the crew began to fade. It gradually died away, and in a few minutes... The cloud had passed over the vessel, and we saw it moving off over the sea. Wow, that's a great story. It's pretty amazing. And and Marie made a super valid point here. There was no financial gain for sharing this story. (laughs) Right. Nothing was lost. There's no cover-up. They didn't try to hide theft of cargo. Yeah. None of that. Ha- this is just something that happened to them, and they all agreed that it happened, and right. they all
0: agreed that it happened this way. What year was this? 1904. It's like with a lot of pilots. They don't report strange phenomena, like UFOs. And same thing with ship captains. They're very serious, sober people. Again, back to close encounters. Like, do you wish to report a UFO? Uh, no. Yeah. Because then you're, um, seen, negative. <laughs> you're seen as a wacko. Negative tower. We don't want to report that. Yeah. You don't want that on record, <laughs> because then people were thinking you've had too many. And you're retired. Bar. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, that's the thing. this story, though, of course, it reminds me a lot of like an old Star Trek episode yeah. where they're enveloped in this fog. Of course, then the fog would be sentient in some kind of form of Oh, you're talking about the companion, which was on the planet. It was on the planet, yeah. but it was a cloud that was sparkly. It had like little yes. lights it. Uh, looked a little bit it. like throw up. <laughs> <It ended> up <laughs> that, that, right, with, with twinkling lights uh, within it. Yeah. But in this case... It and it d- came with that great music, too. That it was like pheromone oh, type. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, okay. but it just wanted some companionship. But I think it t- it could take other forms. Yes. Here, who knows? It's like all kinds of strange things happen, especially if you read the descriptions of St. Elmo's Fire, which is a very rare occurrence. But ball, lightning, St. Elmo's Fire, it's not been very well documented and recorded. I'm not sure if there's even any great photos of it. But it does happen. And again, it's not supernatural. It's just a natural weather, atmospheric phenomenon. So... The most extreme things that get your head wrapped around this, it's dealing with the truncation of space and time. Because, again, as I said earlier, those are things that we count on to make sense of our world. And when those don't add up, it's very disturbing. It's very disconcerting.
1: I want to make a point here. It's one of those things that I heard, I can't remember, on NPR something just last week. I was listening to... Somebody talking about physics and space and time, and it was a little thing that popped out, and I was like, I have to tell our listeners this, and I just wanted to say it really quick. They had a guest on, I wish I could remember who it was that said it now, you know, shame on me for that, but he said that the big disconnect, because we talked in their past episode about the fact that quantum mechanics... And the theory of relativity don't jibe. Right. They they
0: don't necessarily connect. Right. So there's no final grand unified theory of everything because they can't account for gravity and time.
1: Right. There's a disconnect between them. And what this gentleman said, who I seem to remember as somebody who was very well educated, was that the real problem between quantum theory and the theory of relativity is time. Yeah. 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 And that's the monkey wrench. That's right. the flaw in the ointment between those two theories. I just wanted to put that out there because it simplifies, probably oversimplifies, but yeah. I just thought that was interesting. So, anyway.
0: Yeah. Well, I'd heard, you know, things like it's a very specific and subjective experience. And there's no reason, according to physics, I believe, that time can't run backwards. It just doesn't. So, it's just part of our experience. Well, no, maybe because it doesn't exist. Well, again, to get spiritual, we say this quite often, but it's a big philosophical and Buddhist theory. It's all one big now. There is no past. There is no future. That's Einstein. I think he said that about time. It's, It's all happening at once. Well, that quote is yes, time happens so that everything doesn't happen at once, which that's how we have to experience it or we go insane. So, again, time is an experience, but it's not quantifiable. It's like gravity, that's predictable with physics, but we don't know where it comes from or why. It happens really. So you can't really include it in the theory of everything. Right. So, yeah, that's a big stickler. But once we figure that out, maybe that opens up a whole new world to us. All right, I want to read one
1: more article here. This is another one that is from more recent times, 1975.
0: This That's is uh, right in our wheelhouse yeah. of strange <laughs> Bermuda Triangle Bigfoot UFO stuff.
1: This is from Florida Today, and this is kind of a famous incident, which some people will probably recognize when they hear it. The article is called Captain Recounts Escape. It is written by one Charles Berlitz. Oh,
0: <laughs> he got around. Yeah, yeah
1: this, this is a good one. The experience of Captain Don Henry in 1966 gives a graphic account of a tug-of-war, in quotes, between a towboat and an unidentified force attempting, consciously or unconsciously, to capture the barge. We were coming in on the return trip between Puerto Rico and Fort Lauderdale. We had been out for three days towing an empty barge which had carried petroleum nitrate. I was aboard the Good News, a 160-foot-long tug of 2,000 horsepower. The barge we were towing weighed 2,500 tons and was on a line 1,000 feet behind. We were on the tongue of the ocean. This is going to come up again in a minute. Oh, that's right. Also known as Toto. Also known
0: as Autec.
1: We were on the tongue of the ocean after coming through the Exumas. The depth was about 600 fathoms. It was afternoon, the weather was good, and the sky was clear. I had gone to the cabin and back of the bridge for a few minutes when I heard a lot of hollering going on. I came out of the cabin onto the bridge and yelled, What the hell is going on? The first thing I looked at was the compass, which was spinning clockwise. I did not know what had happened, but something big was sure as hell going on. This show tonight has a lot of H-E double hockey sticks in it.
0: (laughs) For you kids, yes. Apologies.
1: Uh, What the heck is going on? The water seemed to be coming from all directions. The horizon disappeared. We couldn't see where the horizon was. The water, sky, and horizon all blended together. We couldn't see where we were. Whatever was happening robbed stole or borrowed everything from our generators all electric appliances and outlets ceased to produce power the generators were still running but we weren't getting any power the engineer tried to start an auxiliary generator but couldn't get a spark i was worried about the tow. it was tight but i couldn't see it it seemed to be covered by a cloud and around it the waves seemed to be more choppy than in other areas i rammed the throttles full ahead i couldn't see where we were going but i wanted to get the hell out in a hurry It seemed that something wanted to pull us back, but it couldn't quite make it. Coming out of it was like coming out of a fog bank. When we came out, the tow line was sticking out straight, like the Indian rope trick, with nothing visible at the end of it, where it was covered by a fog concentrated around it. I jumped to the main deck and pulled. The damn barge came out from the fog, but there was no fog anyplace else. In fact, I could see for 11 miles. In the foggy area where the tow should have been, the water was confused. Although the waves were not big, call me Nero, not Hero. I wasn't going back to find out what it was that was back there. Ooh, as you can see, Mister Berlitz has the gift of gab.
0: Yeah, <laughs> well, he writes a lot of books. <laughs> he does. He's a no. It's got a great a ring of. Uh, well, he's a good storyteller. Yeah. The tow line is astern. Yeah. So behind them, something is pulling them back into this batch as cotton ball of fog. Right. Now maybe it was just magnetic energy and it felt like it was pulling
1: them back and they couldn't pull it out because right. the electronic fog, if that's what this was in this case, yeah. had such a strong draw on yeah. the barge itself that it took a 2,000 horsepower engine to get it pulled
0: free. Well, now, of course, I am totally rethinking what happened to the Mary Celeste and <laughs> the, the tow line because it disappeared the people's. Yeah. The tow line was out. It was in a bit of disarray as if they'd gone through some kind of storm. And as we know, these types of strange phenomenon, even astrophysical phenomenon like the solar storm of 1859, which the Ark dug up and known as the Carrington event, was really massive. People saw sparks jumping on telegraph lines. And it can happen again. That's the other thing that people don't realize. There's not a whole lot you can do. But basically, it would send us back to the early 19th century. You might have gas lamps working. Everything else we know that is modern life would cease to function. My iPhone? Like this whole podcast. Yes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but the good, good thing point. about it was that it's uh, it, it, happening in 1859. Although people saw like poles and lines catching fire, it was so magnetically charged. The good thing is that there wasn't much in the way of electronics back then. So it didn't cause a huge amount of damage, although it was visible. Imagine that kind of freaking you out because it's not like a hurricane where you can see it or a tornado. It's relatively invisible, except that you're seeing the effects of a a massive solar flare, a, a coronal mass ejection event. And again, it can happen at any time, and if it does, we're kind of in a bit of trouble there. So with the Mary Celeste, like, I'm not sure that's the case. We do have a very strong team squid bent here. Team, team G- giant squid. Team giant squid. Yeah. But not, it's just not of, your
1: regular calamari. No,
0: it is. A, you're, <laughs> a lot of sauce and breading with that one. But if you look at the instance, if that is true, Charles Berlitz's story about the tug now that almost sounds sentient. Something tugging on them or could just very well be some kind of phenomenon that is unexplainable. Well, if it's electromagnetic and it's latching onto things, it could feel like
1: it's sentient because it's being attracted to man-made things because they're made of metal.
0: Yeah, no, it's... it's, So then
1: it seems like it's out to get you. Right, it's just... But it's no more out to get you than the static shock when you walk across the carpet barefoot and touch your dog. Yeah,
0: exactly. That's not... On the nose, usually. (laughs) Oh, that's (laughs) kind of cruel. But the idea is that it's like with a chain There's a bit of fear being added to this. So the perceptions of those experiencing it is shaded by the fact that they are terrorized and all this weird stuff is happening to them and they can't explain it. Yeah. Like not being able to pick up the chains.
1: All right, I want to touch on one last common ground incident here before we wrap up the show. And that is the Lindbergh incident, which is very well covered in the very introduction of Bruce Gernon's book. It's actually by Rob McGregor and Bruce Gernon. They wrote it together. It is called The Fog. I can recommend it. We got a lot of information from it. And you can find it online pretty easily. And his new book will be out in August of this year. We'll see if we can have him back on. Yeah. If something about, I have a suspicion that it might be about time slips. Ah. Not when you're clocking in or out to make a horrible joke (laughs) twice. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So listen to this. Just going to read a brief section here, one or two pages from Bruce's book about what happened to Lindbergh. Quote, nothing on my map of Florida corresponded with the Earth's features I had seen. Where could I be? Those were the baffling words of Charles Lindbergh as he described a mysterious experience on a flight across the Caribbean through the heart of the Bermuda Triangle. Lindbergh took off at 1.35 a.m. on February 13, 1928, on what for him should have been a routine flight, the last leg of his Around the Gulf and Caribbean tour, or Caribbean for those of you that are probably going to email. He intended to fly nonstop from Havana to St. Louis which would be the first ever nonstop flight between the two cities. Quote, it should have been an easy flight, about a third the distance from New York to Paris, he wrote in his autobiography. He climbed to an altitude of 4,000 feet and settled back to enjoy the night flight. But halfway across the Straits of Florida, my magnetic compass started rotating, and the Earth inductor compass needle jumped back and forth erratically. By that time, a haze had formed, Uh, screening off horizons. uh Uh-oh. Only one other time had he seen two compasses fail at once. That was during a storm in the Atlantic en route to Paris, and his magnetic compass only oscillated back and forth, so he was able to calculate his direction by the central point of the oscillation. That's happened with me but with the gas gauge in my dad's old British car. Flipping around? Yeah, it flips around, and you just kind of guess where the middle is. I've seen the bouncing... (laughs) Yes, no, I've seen bouncing gauges before, Yes. But this time in the Caribbean, the magnetic compass spun in circles and the inductor compass was useless. I had no idea whether I was flying north, south, east, or west. Lindbergh started climbing toward the clear sky that just minutes ago had been above him. If he could find Polaris, he could navigate by the stars, but the haze thickened as he climbed higher. So he descended to less than a thousand feet, but the haze followed him and he could barely see the ocean. Just before dawn, he spotted a shadowy island and assumed that he'd reached the Florida Keys. But after crossing a narrow body of water, Lindbergh saw a long coastline bending to the right, the opposite way the land curved on his map of Florida. But if I was not flying over a Florida Key, where could I be? Was it possible I had returned to Cuba, that my attempt to read the twirling compass had put me 180 degrees off course? The coastline ended and he saw more Keys ahead. He realized that if he wasn't over the Florida Keys, he was above the Bahamas. That meant he'd been flying at a 90-degree angle from his proper heading and that he was about 300 miles off course. Once the sun was high enough above the horizon, he determined east and headed through the haze in the opposite direction toward the Florida coast. The magnetic compass stopped rotating as soon as he reached the mainland. He passed by dozens of heavy squalls as he moved through Florida and Georgia and headed on to St. Louis to complete his flight. Possibly because of his renown as a pilot, Lindbergh never talked publicly about his strange experience in what was to become known as the Bermuda Triangle. He waited to reveal it in his autobiography, which was published four years after his death in 1978. All right. This is happening not just to Bruce. As Bruce said himself, he knew of other pilots, I think, in contemporary times. But we've also got the Lindbergh incident. And then we've got these maritime incidents that we've covered. All of them have strikingly similar That's what
0: I was mentioning before, is that the patterns of some kind of atmospheric magnetic cloud disturbance, or just simply something strange, a bank of some kind, that is affecting your instruments for one, your sense of direction, and just visibility. And so, yes, there's a common thread that runs through all of these stories, whether in uh, the air or the sea, the stuff happening on land seems to be more about taking roadkill off to uh, eat it somewhere 100 yards away. <laughs> but the idea, though, that these experienced and skilled airmen and seamen are experiencing and describing very similar phenomenon tells me that there's something to this, that this phenomenon actually happens. And whether statistically it's not as much in the Bermuda Triangle, there does to me, and at least anecdotally, in a but on a huge scale something's going on down there
3: another thing i want pilots to understand if they're caught in this electronic fog only make one turn and then you either turn to the mainland or turn to the main body of water because once you make two turns you're going to start to lose your sense of direction and then if you make three now you got to start guessing which way is north and south. You got—you have, have absolutely no idea because once all the electronics go out, you can't navigate.
0: That's gonna wrap it up for this episode. We'll be back in one week with a show on the infamous disappearance of Flight 19. We'd like to thank The Great Courses Plus, Squarespace, and Zip Recruiter for sponsoring the show.
1: Please remember that supporting our sponsors supports Astonishing Legends. Special thanks to John Boland.
2: Hello, this is the Count of St. Germain, otherwise known as Kevin Pollack.
3: Hi,
0: I'm Ian Ulam.
3: I'm Kristen Duet, and, and I give permission, permission to Astonishing Legends, legends to use, use my voice however they, they
0: see fit, galaxy-wide, galaxy-wide in perpetuity, <laughs> or whatever.
1: Fantastic. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees, and the theme is by Judson Crane. Sound
0: design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The ARC and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel. But most importantly, we want to thank our listeners. You can find us online at astonishinglegends.com, as well as Facebook, Patreon, Twitter, Tumblr, Google+, and Instagram. Copyright Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Good night.